This week, Zane Lackey from Signal Sciences will join us for our feature interview. <clears throat> Excuse me. Got the, the pirate voice wanting to come out. But that I'm going to leave to Larry Pesce, who's delivering a technical segment in his pirate voice on ESP8266 Socks. They got that right? Aye. <laughs> That's it. It's in systems on a chip. And <laughs> in the news, the TV you watch at night could be watching you. How to protect your TV from being hacked, Apple's top secret iBoot, and massive cybercrime network has been taken down. All that and more on this edition of Paul Security Weekly. This is Security Weekly. For security professionals, by security professionals. Broadcasting live from G-Unit Studios in Rhode Island, it's the show where exploits run wild, packets aren't the only things getting sniffed, and the cocktails flow steady. It's Paul's Security Weekly. I'm, of course, your host, Paul Zadorian. Excited to be here, as always, on Paul's Security Weekly. Hi, and welcome to the show. I totally introduce our host right now, but I've got a totally awkward bone. What? We're... Oh, hey! I'm, I'm in the studio with you guys. That's kind of cool. Um, <laughs> Sounds like a plan. And we'll at least have one person listening. That's right. <laughs> Just yeah, yeah I, I know. And I appreciate it, and I, I'm, I'm glad you enjoyed your spooning with Jeff. But, uh, you know. Hey, that's actually built a new office. Oh, okay. Yeah, third baby on the way, so I needed a new office. Nice. I, I, I lost my old office. That's now the baby room. Brought to you by... Signal Sciences is the industry's first web protection platform that works in any cloud, any container, any platform as a service, and any modern application architecture. The Signal Sciences web protection platform can be deployed in next generation WAF, RASP, or reverse proxy modes, giving customers ultimate flexibility and coverage. Protect your web applications with Signal Sciences web protection platform. Signal Sciences, protecting applications, connecting teams. For more information, check them out at signalsciences.com forward slash PSW. The average time between being hacked and realizing you've been hacked is one year. Can you afford to let an intruder roam your network for that long? Can your company weather the fallout when this comes to light? Black Hills Information Security can find the bad guys in your network and train you to do it yourself. Email consulting at blackhillsinfosec.com to find out how a hunt teaming engagement can help you find a persistent threat in your network. Hi, mateys, and welcome to the show. But first... Let me introduce you to a man who sits the first day with his hook, Paul Asadorian. Welcome, everyone, apparently to the pirate edition of Paul's Security Weekly. It's Hi. episode 547, uh, and somewhere there's a joke in there about booty. I'm just not quite sure how it fits in uh, just yet. But oh, I, you know how it fits into the booty. I am <laughs> excited, I think, for tonight's show <laughs> with my co-host... Who's here in studio, Mr. Larry, the Pirate Pesci. Aye. What is your pirate name? <laughs> I have no idea. Oh, okay. The butt pirate himself. Nay. <laughs> Nay, says I. <laughs> Not that there's anything wrong with this. <laughs> and there's no one on uh, via <laughs> Skype. It's just you and I here in studio. In terms of regular hosts, we do have a special guest on via Skype, which I'll introduce in one moment. <clears throat> As soon as I tell people about our on-demand webcast, you can go to securityweekly.com forward slash on-demand. In fact, one of the on-demand webcasts you can watch is with myself, I think it might have been Joff and Zane, or Doug, or someone else, and Zane Lackey from Signal Sciences. So if you like 
if you like Zane, after we interview him and ask him a lot about himself and what he likes, long walks on the beach and things like that, uh, if you want to hear a more technically focused uh, topic conversation, it's really focused on a, there's some technical stuff, there's some higher level stuff, but it's really focused on um, the web application security problem. So it was Joff. Was it Joff, Zane, that was on that webcast? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Okay. So you can hear the three of us. Uh, it was awesome. Uh, also, IT Pro TV. We use them. You should too. ITPro.tv slash Security Weekly. Make sure you go there. If you're listening to things here on the show and you're like, I don't really know much about that or I really want to learn more about that because I heard the Security Weekly guys covering it, ITPro.tv forward slash Security Weekly. You can go do just that and get trained up on a wide variety of topics. Over 3,300 hours content in their library. It's pretty impressive. I would like to introduce Zane Lackey, who is currently the founder and chief security officer at Signal Sciences. I'll let him tell him about, uh, tell you about his background. Zane, welcome to the program. Hey, thanks for having me back. Um, yeah, I can give you a quick, uh, quick bio of my own background. Yeah, no, so, Zane, you haven't been uh, on this. I, have you been on this program, Paul Security Weekly, yet? I, I actually don't think that I have. Okay. I think You've I'm just like uh, excited to get to chat again because uh, I know every time we have a conversation, it's a, it's a great time. Yeah, it's good, to, it's good to have you on this show. So, yeah, Zane, tell us a little bit about your background and, more importantly, how you got started in information security. Yeah, totally. Um, so I actually started out on the security consulting and pen testing side. Uh, so for any folks that remember the days of uh, ISEC Partners after At Stake, uh, I started out as the first employee at ISEC Partners um, and then went through the NCC Group acquisition. Uh, and then after that, um, a, a company called Etsy uh, in New York made me an offer I couldn't refuse to become their first CISO and really uh, build their security program from scratch. And it was particularly interesting because at the time it was pretty much them on the East Coast and Netflix on the West Coast that were pioneering what we now call DevOps and really as part of this shift to cloud. Um, so I kind of got thrown in the trenches there as one of the first CISOs going through that um, and still uh, still have the scars to prove it. I'm, I'm actually 13 years old. I just look this old now after having <laughs> lived in through that. Um, <laughs> but uh, after that, we really, my co-founders and I, there was so many lessons learned that we had about how do you really defend your web applications and your APIs and your in the shift to like microservices and containers and things like that that we saw so many of our peers going through the same shift that what we did is we left Etsy and turned those lessons learned into a product. Uh, so that today is Signal Sciences. So we make a product that the marketing folks would call like a, a next-gen WAF uh, or a RASP offering that we have as well um, to defend everything at the web layer, whether that's your web apps or your APIs or your microservices, and whether that's for you know kind of classic OWASP injection issues. Uh, like SQLi and XSS and stuff like that, or some of the more the uh, you know the stuff that tends to keep me up at night more, which is you know things like account takeover and business logic abuse and API misuse and application level DDoS and everything like that. Um, so it's it's been pretty exciting. We work with pretty much uh, a, a ton of the leaders uh, in the enterprise space that are going into cloud and going into DevOps. And I think the most fascinating stat out of all of that, and then I'll stop talking about the vendor side. I swear, uh, is really that it's. For anyone who's ever worked with a legacy WAF or a, an early RASP before or anything like that, it's that over 95% of our customers actually have us in full blocking mode for all of their production traffic with no learning, with no tuning, anything like that. Um, it's a pretty crazy statistic to get to say. Zane, what was it like making the transition from practitioner? Because it sounds like you were a hands-on practitioner 
and made the jump yeah. right into a CISO role. What was that transition like? And what advice do you have for those that are about to make that leap or have aspirations to make that leap? It was tough. Um, I definitely, um, I think it was the right move. Um, it was definitely tough. And there were a lot of, uh, a lot of times where I stuck my finger in the light socket, uh, for sure. And had to learn very painful lessons. Uh, some of that was just as kind of a first time CISO role. And some of that was because the, the role of security in an organization was changing so rapidly at the time, uh, in that shift into DevOps and cloud. And so I think the biggest advice I can give that I don't know that I would have believed it myself um, going into a first-time CISO role, uh, because I think when you're first coming in, you're really focused on the technical aspects. But the advice that I would give is actually ignore the trap of trying to jump into technology first. Really think about the fact that uh, security, um, even if you have a great relationship with the rest of the organization, Plenty of the folks in there throughout their careers uh, have had negative uh, interactions with security. And so sometimes you're dealing with kind of all of that baggage right up front and you don't even know about it. And so I think when you're going into a security leadership position, whether it's your first one or whether it's your 10th one, um, I think the, the most effective thing that you can focus on in the beginning is building the relationships inside the organization to really say, hey, I view security to try to be an enabler here in this organization. And so we'll bring, you know, we'll adapt technologies and we'll bring different technologies in to try to support that. But trying to get that kind of strategic vision of saying that security's role here is really as an enabler um, and not just as a blocker. I think building that relationship up front allows you to really start to bring in very effective technical controls. Zane, when you went over to Etsy, what was the top priority, hottest problem that Etsy wanted to solve? Um, that was, that was a very interesting one because my last week at ISEC, uh, or MCC group at the time, uh, was with a, it was wrapping up a project with a large U S healthcare company and they deployed to production once every 18 months. And so you discover vulnerabilities as a pen tester and they'd say, yeah, that's great. We're halfway through this development cycle. So that'll get fixed in 36 months or 24 months. Um, and so it was a crazy thing to, to really to get to see. And I left there on a Friday, started at Etsy on a Monday. And Monday morning, the, the technical leadership at Etsy sat me down and said, hey, uh, so we deploy to production 20 times a day, figure out security in this model, go. Um, and so that was, uh, as you'd imagine, a pretty challenging, uh, pretty challenging statement and environment. Um, and luckily, I was really the team there had so much buy-in for security, and they really viewed it as a first-class engineering requirement. Um, that going into that, it really became okay. You know, there's nothing I can Google about this. Uh, really, what I was saying to the leadership there was saying, like, look, we're going to try a lot of new things. Uh, a lot of those are going to fail, uh, but we are going to try our best to really bring security in as this enabler. And so that jump was really. It was really pronounced, I would say, but also kind of by focusing on buying and focusing on enablement, I think that's what allowed um, security to actually um, to really succeed there early on. Once you understood their business requirements, what was the number one problem you wanted to solve? Uh, it was nothing. It was nothing crazy, actually. I think it's a you know the thing things that so many of us in the trenches deal with, right? It's, um, it's kind of the basics in a lot of ways. Uh, you know, I wanted to get things around 
encryption and things around two-factor auth and things around protecting our web applications and our APIs. Um, it wasn't, you know, go solve this insane edge case problem. Uh, there were plenty of those too, of course, right? That's the joy of security. But uh, I think for so much of us, it's let's get the foundations in place. Let's get the fundamentals in place and let's iterate on top of that. So did Etsy have no security when you got there, Zane? <laughs> um, I will not answer that question directly, uh, but I will <laughs> happily say that I was the first full-time security hire. Um, now, the, the actual answer, right, is that their, their technical leadership really cared about security. It's why it was such an interesting role to go into, is that there was buy-in from, from the executives on down about security. And so that's why it was such an interesting role to go, to go be the first kind of head of security and first CISO there. Sure, sure. So uh, some will think that just by having DevOps, it means that you're secure. Obviously, there are there is security that we have to apply to the DevOps process. When you got to Etsy, what did what did you start to implement to build security into DevOps? Recognizing that we're all on the same page here, that security and DevOps are two different things. Yeah. Oh, very much so. Right. I think that DevOps is interesting to me from the security perspective, and I had to learn this lesson the hard way. Um, Security is, or DevOps is interesting to me from the security perspective because it allows us the opportunity to be safer. It doesn't make us safer by default, but it allows us the opportunity to do that. You know, if you had asked me in my first, even my first six months or so, I would have said, this is crazy. It's going to make us far less safe because we're moving so fast uh, that there's no way that this will actually, you know, this will actually be a, a really scary thing. What I had to learn over time is that, um, and it's, it's so simple that's kind of embarrassing, uh, but it, it took me a while to really learn this fact, which is that every development methodology and every infrastructure methodology, it's gonna have security vulnerabilities in it. And so the reason why DevOps allows us to be safer if we do it right, which is the big caveat, is that it for the first time allows us to react quickly. You know, for all of us that have lived through security in a waterfall data center world, um, it's not that we didn't have security vulnerabilities in there. It's that they were a nightmare to fix and patch and update as part of. And so where DevOps, if done right, uh, can make us safer is because the system is changing so frequently, um, it allows us when we discover a critical issue, whether it's infrastructure or application or anything like that, it allows us to make the change very quickly. Um, in and of itself, it doesn't make us completely safe. Uh, it's that it affords us the opportunity to do it better. How many vendors did you speak with in your time at Etsy, especially early on? Did you immediately dismiss because there was just no chance they could help you? Oh, plenty. I mean, I think you talk to any CISO today and, and that's the case, right? I think that's the real challenge is uh, there are a few vendors out there that actually like are really useful. The problem is that the noise out there is just absolutely incredible, right? I'm a, I'm a CISO at a product vendor now and I get spammed by vendors every day constantly. Um, so I think it's it's really a short list of you know vendors that have really that have solved real problems, and the ones that I always look for are the ones that come from being practitioners themselves, right? Is it just a vendor trying to go into a new space and they want to spend a bunch of marketing and stuff in that space, or is it someone who became a vendor because they had to solve a problem in house, and then they saw their peers going through that and they really recognized, okay, I should actually uh, provide this as a product because all of my peers are going to go through this. How upset do customers get when they can't order their customized chapstick holders? <laughs> <laughs> that is a that is a fantastic question that I'm I'm sure a marketing team has a, a very long answer for and everything there, but man, I'm I the wrong guy for that one. <laughs> 
so <laughs> in your time at Etsy, it was, you know, how did you not impact the business? Uh, or if you did, you know, what were some of the lessons learned by impacting that? Um, and, and what can you share with our listeners about basically lessons learned from making a business have impact or not? I mean, largely it was if DevOps and containers, it's, uh, I, I think, more difficult to disrupt production. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's kind of two key points, I would say. One is a real strategy and one is just kind of a, a quick point. So I'll start with the quick one. Uh, but the quick one is treat, um, treat saying no like you only have a few, you only get a few of those a year. Let's say you get two no's a year. So use them wisely. Um, and when you start to think through that sort of mentality, it really makes you think about, okay, how do I enable instead of block? Um, so, you know, pick a number and kind of think about that. I think the, the deeper strategy of what I really learned going through that shift to DevOps and cloud is that the only way in which we survive that jump, uh, we meaning security uh, and just defenders in general, that might be engineers, it might be DevOps folks, it might be security folks, um, is by enabling the development teams and the DevOps teams with security directly. I think the same thing that's happening to security right now is what happened to performance five, eight, 10 years ago, where you saw the rise of App Dynamics and New Relic and folks like that. Um, and it was really interesting because it took something that was a very specialized skill set around performance and understanding the performance impacts of different uh, areas of the application. And they brought that visibility and that capability directly to the development teams and the DevOps teams. And so now they could own the performance of the services that they were building themselves. I think security is just starting to learn this fact. And this is really what, um, this is something that we really had to learn in-house too, is that the only way security scales through the shift to DevOps and cloud is by enabling the development teams and the DevOps teams directly and plugging into their tool chain and meeting them where they already are and giving them that visibility and the ability to defend the services that they're building. Like ultimately you want the, I think the goal of any security team today is to make the rest of the organization security self-sufficient. At the time with there not being many vendor solutions on the market to help you, did you turn to build uh, your own security tools internally? We certainly did. We built a number of things in-house, uh, some that we should have uh, because there was just nothing coming. Others that, quite honestly, we really shouldn't. And I think that was part of my maturing as an engineering leader is really knowing when to build versus buy. Um, you know, there were plenty of, there were some really good vendors out there, you know, like folks like Duo, who are just absolutely incredible um, and brought them really, uh, brought them in really early on. Um, a number of other folks that, um, I know today that are that are really uh, useful that I wish had existed at the time. Right. Um, but we really built a number of things in house, and really, it's funny because that's I mean that became the signal sciences story, right? Is we built all that and eventually left to start a company around that. Yeah. So what what was the kind of defining moment in the spark to say I want to go start a company to solve this problem? <laughs> uh, I'm laughing because it's a very dumb story, actually. Um, which is that uh, a couple of my, my co-founders uh, and I, we were, um, one of them had already left Etsy. Um, actually, both of them by then had already left Etsy. Um, and we were giving a talk at a conference uh, independently. And a friend of ours came up to us after um, our different talks and said, you know, hey, don't you, don't you guys miss working together? And I'm like, oh yeah, we absolutely do. Like, we can't wait to work together again. Um, and he's like, well, I hate to break it to you, but after each of your talks, um, and where you were talking about techniques for defending web apps and lessons learned out of Etsy and everything, um, you had a bunch of enterprise folks come up and ask if there was anything they could buy 
uh, that would help out with some of that. And you told them all, you know, there was nothing there, but you could share techniques, you could share, you know, ideas and everything like that. And he's like, maybe you want to reconsider that. And that was like the, the dumbest light bulb moment of all time. We're like, oh, we miss working together. And many more people are really facing these challenges than, than we realized at the time. Maybe we should actually start something here to, to help this broader swath of folks that are going through the, the same stuff that we did. The, the best companies, but the best companies talk about the solution before they develop a product or form a team. And the funny part is that you guys were doing that without even knowing you were doing it. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's awesome. So if you were looking for a super genius founding story, clearly that was not it. But I, I'm happy that I could give you a dumb one at least. <laughs> no, no, that's a, well, that's a, that's a good story because, like I said, it, it it speaks to the things you want to have in place before you go build the company, and and I feel like a lot of people get that backwards. Um, yeah, I mean, we really in house there. There were so many products in the space that we wish that we could buy, right? We looked at all the the WAF vendors and everything like that, and they just they caused us more pain than they actually solved, and that's why we ended up really having to to build in house there and then eventually step out from there. Zenith, <clears throat> at some point. DevOps caught the attention of security. Gene Kim was evangelizing very, very heavily on it. And companies started to emerge that were doing DevOps really well, like Etsy. And I think sort of subconsciously, those of us in the security community were like, well, Etsy's really good at, at security. But what's the story? Like, what was the tipping point that put Etsy kind of on the map as being a leader in terms of a security model. For and, and I, I want to follow that up with most people think Etsy and they're like, oh, handmade arts and crafts. They don't think necessarily. Yeah, DevOps. handmade chapstick holders. Yeah, exactly. DevOps. Oh, totally. <laughs> exactly. They don't, they don't think yeah. DevOps. Our, our running first... joke was uh, yeah. sequin injection and cross-site scripting. Uh, cross-site, uh, yeah. <laughs> cross-site <laughs> so sequin injection. That's awesome. <laughs> Yeah, that was, those were the, the serious threats we were faced with there. Um, no, I think it's really funny, right? Because I think you can say the same thing of, uh, you know, Netflix and other, you know, mm -hmm. absolute leaders in the space, which is like, oh, a movie streaming site, like, why would they be great at engineering? Well, it turns out they're absolutely world class at it, right? They invented entire new fields of them. Um, and the same thing goes for, you know, Facebook and Google and, and all of these folks. It doesn't necessarily tie the product that they deliver to the caliber of engineering that they have and the, um, you know, the, how much they really push the state of the art forward. Um, so that was really interesting. And then going back to your question, it was a real turning moment, uh, turning point. This was a, a couple of years before I got there, um, where they brought in uh, Chad Dickerson as CTO, and he brought in a team that he had worked with of John Allspaugh uh, and Kellen, uh, Elliot McRae, and, and a bunch of really great folks um, that they they came in after Etsy had already been going and they really rebuilt the engineering organization and re really rebuilt the entire approach to engineering uh, from the ground up there. And so I was extremely fortunate that uh, when I came in and joined them from the security side, that they were so focused on pushing forward this whole kind of DevOps movement and continuous deployment and continuous integration um, that really they viewed security, which I felt was the right way, which is security is a piece of good engineering. And so just like the rest of engineering, when you're pushing the envelope forward, there's going to be failures, uh, but you roll forward. You don't roll backward. No, I love that. That's awesome. All right, questions for, for Zane? None, none for me, but I, I just want to yeah, step back to that again. But yeah, it was very much a shock when I started seeing folks from Etsy come to speak at security conferences, like this amazing stuff that they were doing. And I think that one of the things that would really was really setting Etsy apart at the time was very much they were willing to speak about some of these amazing engineering security technical feats that they had done, unlike some of those other companies that you had mentioned, like necessarily Facebook or, or you know, 
uh, Netflix and they were willing to share, which was amazing. Yeah, it was it was a really exciting time, right? I think I, I I tried to tell my team a lot of times that hey, you're kind of in this golden age of a a security team at a company that views security in such a positive way, and we're really able to push the envelope forward. Um, so it's a time that I'm really thankful for um, the team that I had, the leadership team that I got to work with. It was it was really a great time, and I think you know plenty of organizations were really trying to share in whatever way worked best for them, right? That might have been open sourcing, it might have been blog posts, it might have been talks, whatever. Um, but you know, at the end of the day, we're all facing the same challenges here. So the more we can help each other, the better. How did Etsy feel about three of its key security team members leaving and starting their own security product company? <laughs> um, that was the nice thing is we had actually all left at different times. It wasn't, uh, it was actually gotcha. a really friendly departure. Um, they, uh, you know, their, their logo is actually up on our, our site today as a customer. Um, oh, so there, and can we you actually say had a great relationship with the, the tech um, the tech leadership there can you say publicly if they're a customer or not today uh yeah their their logo is up on our website today. that's awesome that's awesome well and then you know that kind of speaks for itself um i just wondered if there was an executive at etsy that was like hey those three security people that left like they have their own company now like that's that's kind of neat like were they like did we do too good of a job with employee enrichment such that our three smartest security people <laughs> left and then started their own product company uh, but now they're a customer, so I guess it, it, it works out. I, I think that they, you know, they approached it in a way that I was always, I, I found really admirable, uh, which is that they really thought of it as, you know, this this speaks volumes about the organization that we've built, yeah. that people are coming out of here to start companies. Yep. Right? I think it's it's kind of like you saw a wave out of Google or Facebook or any other leader in their particular area, uh, that you, when you see these really interesting companies come out of somewhere, it speaks volumes about what a great organization they've built. And that's the best public relations that just happens organically like that, which is pretty cool. Yeah, exactly. And so now who are your other two founders? One is Tyler, correct? Uh, no, one is uh, Nick Galbraith, who's our, okay. our CTO and was a director of engineering at Etsy. Uh, and then the other is Andrew Peterson, who's our CEO, uh, who ran a lot of the, the business expansion at Etsy uh, and product and uh, a million different things there. Oh, and then so how did Tyler Shields get, get plugged in? Yeah, Tyler's fantastic. So I've known Tyler for over 10 years at this point, kind of going back to, to uh, at stake and then Barricode days on his side. Um, just we've known each other through the security community forever. And he was an analyst at Forrester. And it's actually pretty funny. We um, went to ask him about, you know, like, hey, how how can in, a, in the longer term, how can we think about talking to, to analysts and everything there? And he's like, oh, well, tell me about what you guys are working on. And by the time that we kind of finish the conversation with them. He's like, oh, this is actually really interesting. Like, we should have a conversation. This is kind of, you know, I, I'm, I'm really interested in taking a closer look at you guys and, and potentially joining you. That's awesome. That's awesome. You yeah. pitched, you pitched yeah, an analyst today. The analyst liked you so much that he, uh, what, what is Tyler's exact title today? Uh, he's now VP of Marketing Partnerships and Strategy. I, uh, That's awesome. I said that right. Yeah. But yeah. I mean, it, what, what a great sign, right? That the first analyst that we talked to actually left their role to come join us. <laughs> that That's amazing. Was, cool. That was very yeah. rewarding. It, we work with Tyler on the, the sponsorship uh, side of things. So nice. Signal Signs is obviously a, a sponsor of the show. So uh, that's that's really cool. Um, so then what, what was it like when you guys had a company? Like, what are some of your biggest challenges today? 
Yeah. Um, you know, it's really interesting for sure. Start going over to the vendor side, which I think I spent the majority of my career as a CISO uh, saying a bunch of four letter words about vendors, um, which <laughs> uh, I think are still mostly accurate today. Uh, but I think one of the one of the highest compliments that um, that I've gotten personally during the, the time of our company was a CISO who pulled me aside uh, after they did a really, they did kind of a test rollout with us. That went really well. They did a really large scale production rollout with us. That went really well. Um, and he pulled me aside afterwards when we were catching up and he's like, look, I, in my career of you know 20 plus years, there have been vendors on, there, the number of vendors that I have said good things about has been on one hand, right? Um, and he's like, I, it's really been a pleasure working with you guys. And I, I really enjoy the stuff that, that you help us out with and that it's, it's easy to work with you and that our teams love work. You know, our development team says good things about you, which never happens. Um, and so that was a really rewarding moment for us. I mean, really getting that feedback from our different customers and, you know, CISOs who've lived through it just like we have and really saying, hey, thanks for helping us out with the problems that we see here. Nice. What's the, the future bring for, for DevOps uh, and web application security, Zane? Yeah, so I think we're at such an interesting point in that because I think we're at this kind of generational uh, inflection point on that, which historically risk has always been at the infrastructure layer, right? That's where for us on the pen test side, that's where you go target. That's where for the attackers, that's what they would go target first and everything like that. If you look at where risk has shifted, it shifted out to the endpoint side of things and the kind of lateral movement from there and it shifted up to the web application side of things and then the lateral movement from there. And so risk has really shifted. And at the same time, uh, you have the forces of cloud and DevOps where the, especially the web application bit is iterating faster and faster, not slower and slower. So the problem is getting kind of compounded. And so I think from the security perspective, from DevOps, from cloud, just from risk in general, risk has really shifted up to the web application layer and out again, like I said, to the endpoint side of things. Um, and so we're really thinking about how do we shift where we traditionally focus security of like firewalls and IDSs and infrastructure and network layer, how do we shift that up to where the risk is gone, which is the application layer and the endpoint layer. But I think that the, you know, the, the silver lining, <coughs> excuse me, is that we have the opportunity to do better now, right? The, the shift to cloud, the shift to DevOps, it doesn't, like we were talking about before, it doesn't make us safer by default. Um, some of those things like getting out of infrastructure can definitely help, but like DevOps in particular, it doesn't make you safer by default, but it affords you the opportunity to be safer. And so that I think is particularly exciting. There are many categories to web application security. Of course, we've got RASP, we've got source code controls, uh, we've got the containerization uh, security companies. I think specifically, and I meant to ask this offline when I'm asking you uh, on air, <laughs> just and sure. we'll see how it goes. <laughs> But you know the companies uh, that are providing container security versus Signal Sciences providing application security, where do the lines blur? Like where are those lines drawn? In in what benefits do each one have, and where's the overlap? Yeah, totally. So um, yeah, let me let me also yellow and give a, a live answer here as well, uh, which is that the nice thing of the kind of container security companies is they're super complementary to what we do. And even wiping signal sciences out of the picture here, just thinking about the web layer versus the container layer, mm -hmm. the two are really complementary controls because what you have to be good at and what you have to understand there, like as a product, are completely different problem spaces, right? If you're looking at 
escapes from a container environment up to a host, uh, even a host VM or a host hypervisor or something like that, that is a completely different skill set uh, than it is for looking at how does a web application itself be abused or compromised there. And so the two tend to kind of meet where the risk is, uh, but they come at it from different sides and they provide completely complementary coverage. And so what we tend to see is that not only are they completely different projects inside enterprises, they're completely different budget items. They're just completely different pieces of how people think about it. Um, we really don't think about, we don't try to go in that direction of like give coverage over a, you know, a, a container and escape out to a VM or something like that. What we really focus on is the web layer. And that's where we want to be um, really broad and deep in our coverage is saying, Historically, this layer has been a bunch of different point products. So, you know, something for WAF and OWASP injection stuff, something for application DDoS, something maybe for account takeover. Um, you know, I can tell you from my own history on the CISO side, I don't want 18 million point products. I want something that I can drop in to get coverage over that entire layer. And so that's how we really see the world is we want to help mitigate the risk at the web layer for our customers, whether that's classic OWASP injection flaws, like for WAF sort of stuff, whether that's account takeover, over, whether that's application DDoS, whether that's business logic abuse or API misuse or anything like that. So it sounds like today, it, rather than we go shopping for firewalls or some kind of WAF, we're going to be shopping for containerization security uh, solutions in addition to application security solutions such as signal sciences. I think so. I think that speaks to that that chunk of the risk. And then the other chunk of the risk is the endpoint side and the lateral movement side, right? Things around two-factor off, things around modern ways of defending your endpoints, right? So carbon black and silence and CrowdStrike and modern ways of doing that sort of stuff. Um, but really addressing what the biggest piece of advice I would give there is thinking about how to address where the risk has shifted and not where it was you know, for where we've spent most of our careers, right? For most of the time, it was at the infrastructure network layer. And it hasn't gone away from there, but it has really started to, to shift into these other buckets. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. I agree. Um, Larry, questions for, for Zane? No. Have you done pen tests where uh, either they have some advanced protections in their application and or are in a containerized environment? Um. If we've done some stuff against containerized stuff, I don't know that we've noted it. Mm -hmm. um, some of the advanced protections, not nearly as much as I think we should have been. Right, right. Um, <clears throat> and in the the cases where it has been present, it hasn't been properly configured, so which is which is kind of disappointing. Um, the 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 part that I'm really curious about is how um, how you deal with some of the business application or the uh, the business uh, flaws uh, and uh, and those types of things. As we know about the traditional WAF and and those types of things, but yeah. the cross-site scripting, SQL injection, yeah, right? Yeah. But yeah. to deal with the the business logic issue is is something a completely different animal. And you know, hearing about how you approach that problem would be really interesting to me. Yeah, exactly. And that was you know definitely from my my pen test days. That was where exactly like you're saying, those are where the interesting bugs always are, right? From from that side of things, so where the really impactful bugs are, and that's where I get extremely nervous to put it mildly when some vendor says oh we'll magically protect your your business logic like <laughs> there's no way you're going to it's going to be unique to me right it's inherent to it uh -huh. um and so i think the way that you actually think about that problem um from a protection side of things is that you don't think about magically trying to machine learn the app or something like that because the reality is the app's going to be continuously changing this is the whole point of devops is that it changes quicker and quicker what you do think about is okay what are kind of buckets of threats that particular applications face? 
And so let's define those out where it's agnostic to the application. And the part that we actually need to plug in specifically to that is just, oh, is this functionality in your app a post to this URL or is it a get to that one that returns a 302? Like what are the individual mechanics that are specific to it? But the threats themselves actually tend to be 80, 90% agnostic uh, to the kind of type of app. So you're a financial services app. Well, you know, here are the things that are actually really risky in that sort of app. You're an e-commerce app. These are the things that are really risky. You're retail. These are the things that are sort of risky. And so you abstract the two pieces away. And I think that was always the problem is that then vendors would try to say, oh, we're going to machine learn for both of them or have AI for both of them. And the reality is they're actually two very separate pieces, right? You think about the logic and what you need to protect, and then you separate out what are the very specifics for the particular app that invokes that logic. Interesting. Very nice. Cool. Because yeah, well, you know, like you said, those are where all the the fun bugs always are from the pandemic <laughs> side. <right? laughs> yes, absolutely. And uh, I think that, and you and told we, stories we, recently about ordering stuff for free, or you actually make money ordering stuff from someone's <laughs> website, no. which I think oh, is yeah. really awesome. And it gets it gets it, the rabbit hole goes deeper. I'll tell you about that offline. But uh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Dealing. So I mean, you, you talk about stuff that have some great protection with WAF and proper coding practices and input and output sanitization and, and that type of stuff. But then you start abusing that business application logic. Yeah, and all bets are off. All bets are off. And that that's the really hard part to get right, I think. But I, me thinking about it, knowing how I approach the problem, seems really simple to me to know to get it right. And you, you don't put the values in the browser. You put them where it gets called on the back end that something where those values get stored where no one can touch it. You, you want to order something? Great. You don't put the re the value that gets right, sent back right. to the application logic in the web page submitted by the user. You have that as a unique identifier that gets stored somewhere that has to be that unique identifier for that transaction. And Don't get me started. <laughs> don't get me started. <laughs> yeah, I can see the pen test stories coming out right there. Yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, that's awesome. Uh, Zane, anything uh, you want to share with our listeners, uh, closing thoughts? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, first of all, thanks for having me on. It's always awesome chatting with you guys. I, I have such a great time, so I really appreciate it. Um, you know, I think in terms of closing, closing thoughts, you know, if you're going through the shift to cloud and DevOps um, and you're at the point where it's, you know, it's maybe just something that's starting to come down the pipe and it feels really like this is going to be a, you know, a, a security train wreck and nightmare um, from someone who's lived through that, uh, I think that it actually affords you an opportunity um, if done right. You know, I'm certainly not going to say it's magic security pixie dust that makes everything better. I mean, I think we've all went through too many, too many transitions to, to ever believe something like that. But I think that I think that the focus can really start to become on enabling the business as part of security here. And that as you're going through DevOps, as you're going through cloud, it's this generational change in the way that we create and deliver software. And so security is going to have to adapt as part of that. Um, and just because it has to adapt, you know, it doesn't mean that it's going to be less safe. Um, it can actually, it affords us the opportunity to be more safe. So doesn't guarantee it, but it gives us a shot at it. And Zane, one final question before we get to the five questions. With the, just the smorgasbord of web technologies that are available today, and inevitably mm -hmm. I'll check my news feeds tomorrow and there'll be some new version of Angular. There'll be Angular 5 or whatever number we're up to now. And the dev teams are probably talking about what they're going to implement. How does that impact your 
security decisions in the context that we're talking about today? Yeah, so this is something that um, honestly could be an hour-long conversation in its own right, so I apologize for saying it at the end of this. But this is why when you think about our, our historical SDLC efforts, they were about trying to eliminate all the bugs before the code went to production. And it's software development. We can never eliminate all the bugs before production. So it doesn't mean we stop doing that, right? You're kind of SDLC efforts around static analysis, dynamic scanning, all, all of that. Like now, those things now still, saying, still now say. They're, they're features, not bugs, just to clarify. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> that's right. You there, can never eliminate all the features before that's it goes right, to production. That's right. <laughs> we try exactly. like hell. It's not but... a command execution bug. It's <laughs> a feature. Yeah. It's not a command execution bug. It's a remote administration feature. Right? Yeah. See, you can, but you can never eliminate so, all the features before it goes. Never mind. <laughs> exactly. So I think that it really shifts to recognizing the, the trend here, right? If you step back and look at what's going on, it's that the inc the rate of change is increasing over time. It's not decreasing. And so that means that, um, you know, what we want to do is not try to focus on eliminating all the bugs before production, but recognizing that they're going to be there. And what we need to do is make the development teams and the DevOps teams security self-sufficient so that they can have visibility into what's going on with their applications and their services. And when they see, uh, you know, when something gets detected that there's actually a bug being exploited or a bug being discovered or just something anomalous happening in the application, that they can be part of the feedback loop to actually fixing their services, that they can actually be security self-sufficient uh, with the tooling and the, the techniques that we're able to provide them. <clears throat> Awesome. All right. You ready to play five questions with Security Weekly? Uh, yeah, let's do it. Three words to describe yourself. Um, well, it's not just the lighting. We'll go with extremely pale right there and kind of reflective uh, at the moment, it looks like, on Skype. Um, uh, I'd say just from seeing you guys with the, uh, the cigars and maybe some whiskey or something like that, uh, in need of joining you on a whiskey, definitely. <laughs> Tragically, I'm on the West Coast uh, this week, so I'm three hours behind on that. It's five o'clock um, somewhere. <laughs> and, then, and you uh, own the company I, I, for crying out loud. I mean, I think, it, uh, <laughs> I think it comes through, but I think excited about um, the change that we're going through in security and that we've got a real opportunity to actually make things better. Uh, and I think that that's a, that doesn't happen every day, right? I think that a lot of times these changes take 10 years, 15 years. And so I think we're at a really interesting opportunity where uh, we can actually impact real change. Zane, that was way more than three words. Just math is not Zane. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, Sorry, man, you gotta, I'll go with three paragraphs. Come on. <laughs> Zane, if you were a serial killer, what would be your weapon of choice? Oh, oh man. Yeah, for anyone watching and thinking that you, we get prepped ahead of time for these five questions, let no, me tell you. you well, that's you part not. of the fun. That's uh, part of the fun. We don't prep anyone exactly. for these. And he may have already answered it because he did say, oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> got would, an, an would, army of that serial be, killers. That would be awkward. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Um, I think maybe I'll just adopt what vendors try to do and just say cyber, cyber, cyber enough times oh. until people's eyes roll back in their head. <laughs> Zane, if you wrote a book about yourself, what would the title be? Um, not being great at five questions. The story of Zane Lackey. <laughs> <laughs> this next question, Zane, is multiple choice. So it, it's right. a lot easier. Okay. Yes. So in the popular game of Ask Grabby Grabby, do you prefer to go first or second? <laughs> <laughs> I told you it was multiple choice. Yeah. You got a 50-50 shot to it. get it right. First I mean, or second. There's, there's no, no right, there is no right or wrong answer. And right. it's multiple choice. Uh, 
Uh, <laughs> uh, you know what? I'm going to defer back to you guys for that one. I'll, you know, for my fifth one, I'm turning it back to you right there. But with the caveat that it's got to be in the pirate voice. Gotcha. So that was that was only four. There's one more. Saying, okay. And hey, it's always safe to go second. But sometimes if you like the risk, you go first. Hey. Except when you're playing with Larry. Uh, Zane, choose two celebrities to be your parents. Alive, dead, living, or otherwise. Sorry, alive, dead, fictional, or otherwise. <laughs> alive, dead, or living. I was going to yeah. say, is there something up with living that I don't know about? Richard? Uh, it's a pirate joke. Um, I wouldn't understand. If it's a zombie, <laughs> is it living and dead at the same time? I... <laughs> is, it, is it like a, a Rob Zombie there? A, a living, uh, living dead celebrity? There you go. Um... So alive, dead, fictional, otherwise. Yeah, exactly. Man, I'm going. Th- my book is going to have so many chapters at how terrible I am at impromptu five questions. Um, this, uh, I feel like this whole segment is getting cut for time easily. Uh, <laughs> and that's all the time we have for today. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> hey, the man needs to answer his questions. <clears throat> you need exactly. a mom and a dad. It can be two females, two males. Totally fine. Uh, it can be whatever. Um, I don't have a good one for you. I'm going to write in after the show for this. Let's All right. <laughs> We're going to read your answer on the next show. So stay tuned next stay, week. Stay tuned. Fall Security Weekly exactly. will feature. There we go. It's a cliffhanger. I'll That's help right. It out right dumb, Zane, dumb, Zane Lackey's dumb. choices for two celebrities to be his parents, fictional, dead, alive, or both, or some combination or, or otherwise. Thereof. So, Zane, thank you. Star. <laughs> Thank you so much for appearing on Paul Security Weekly. It was wonderful having you. Hey, it's great to see you guys. Thanks for having me on. It was an absolute pleasure. With that, we'll take a short break. Come back. Larry is going to do a technical segment, so stay tuned. Aye. This episode is brought to you by IT Pro TV. Binge-worthy learning for IT teams. Why is it binge-worthy? It's learning presented in an engaging and entertaining talk show format that beats voiceover PowerPoint snooze vests. IT Pro TV offers an on-demand course library with more than 3,300 hours of content. Watch on your desktop, on the go, or in the comfort of your own living room. IT Pro TV is IT training you and your team actually want to watch which means a better return on your learning investment. Get started with IT Pro TV for Teams with a special offer for Security Weekly listeners. Visit itpro.tv forward slash Security Weekly to start a seven-day free trial and get 30% off a standard or premium IT Pro TV membership using the code SECWEEKLY30. Endgame automates the hunt for both known and never-before-seen adversaries in enterprise networks. Built on unique knowledge on the adversary's tools, techniques, and tactics, Endgame's centrally managed agent prevents, detects, and responds to advanced adversaries in the earliest stages of the kill chain without prior knowledge. Endgame, automate the hunt. Welcome back, everyone, to Paul Security Weekly. This is our technical segment for this evening. I'm trying to keep my composure. There's shenanigans going on here in the studio. Hey, Captain, we're coming in hot. <laughs> There's, uh, well, Larry, you're going to be, uh, which is a hilarious break, by the way. I had a case of the giggles. It was awesome. <laughs> I think I'm over it. They might come back later, so just, they just will. They will. warning everyone. Um, so, Larry, you're going to talk about uh, this interesting little piece of hardware. Yeah. Uh, it is the ESP8266 uh, system on a chip. Yep. So, I, I, I would just first, quickly, Larry... Yeah. What is the problem you're trying to solve before we get into the, the technical details? <laughs> and, and you know yeah. what? I kind of expected you to ask. You this knew question. that was coming. Yeah. So 
there's some really interesting things that uh, when I initially started playing with the 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 SP eighty two sixty six for some problems I wanted to solve, and I've got a couple of pages for some things that I was looking at here. Wherever my mouse managed to disappear to here. Um, so one of them, uh, I, I guys, if you switch over to the the my uh, laptop here, um, I, I found one that I was looking at, um, which was a hardware serial port monitor over Wi-Fi. Like I wanted to look at something over uh, on a serial port and be able to monitor that over the network. So kind of like a terminal server type thing, but I didn't want to have to run a cable. Um, so you were uh, you could take serial output, serial output, and shovel it Ethernet or Wi-Fi so that I could okay. look at it so on a device. Capture remotely capture a serial port output. Bingo. And what was the reason for that? Um, I had some devices that were serial enabled. Uh, so one of them was uh, the output monitor for my uh, solar. Uh, okay. Char charging and battery monitor. Yeah, okay. Um, I want to capture that and be able to send yeah, there's a lot that. Of, uh, like UPSs, it's a serial, serial monitor. Yeah, serial monitor. Okay. <clears throat> yep. Um, now, was there hacking shenanigans that can go on, or is this more just a, a useful... It was, for me, more uh, a useful useful case for something yeah. to do. And okay. uh, I spent some time with Ed Skotis talking about Wemo and doing all the IoT hacking type stuff. Um, this... One of the sets of boards that I'll be talking about yeah, very much also was, it's like the IoT of anything. Mm -hmm. It's um, a wireless device that has a system, uh, full system on a chip. So it's got a processor and some storage and some pins you can interact with. So, uh, you know, I built one of the devices in my office that you could talk to um, the Amazon Echo. Mm -hmm. You know what? I didn't say the name so that it didn't you know, yeah. put it in the room. That's um, good. Uh, you could talk to your Amazon Echo to tell it to do things on your network, attached to a Raspberry Pi that was on the network, and then it would trigger mm -hmm. some of the pins. And I thought about one of these types of things for something smaller to do that, some serial monitoring. Um, now, can you? did you want to send commands to the device over yep. a serial port as well? So it's a bi-directional communication. It could be bi-directional, bi okay. or in the case of some of these other devices that I wanted, I just wanted to be able to trigger a relay, mm -hmm. and you could do the same thing. And ICS obviously was built I, largely I over a, a serial uh, yep. industrial control systems yep. uh, PLCs. Certainly, the lots right. of serial involved there. Right. Yep. Absolutely. So those were some of the initial problems that I was trying to solve. Uh, so I wanted to be able to enable some hardware on a network over a Wi-Fi connection. Um, I also terminal. Can you get to a terminal? We used to mm -hmm. use something. Was it over a serial? You could put a, a TTY on a serial port. Yep. And if you plugged into the yep. serial port with a cable, you could. But then there was things that uh, basically enabled those over the the network. It was like really big, expensive Ter gear. Terminal server. So yeah, it was like a term. It was a terminal, terminal server. server. Yeah, yep. yeah. Thank you. Yep. And you can still enable your TTY um, over a serial port mm -hmm. on Raspberry Pi. That's half the time how I interact with them when I'm setting them up gotcha. with a little yeah, USB to mm -hmm. serial converter and plug those into the serial TTY port on on the Pi and configure them that way. Um, and so, but now your device uh, uh, is Wi-Fi enabled. Yep, it is Wi-Fi wi 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 interface. So it bridges uh, Ethernet or Wi-Fi uh, networking yep. TCP/IP into your serial serial port. Right. Gotcha. Oh, also, you can also integrate uh, I squared C, SPI, trigger uh, relays. You name it. So that was. Oh, my I see. So it's not just limited to, to serial, serial communications. Right. Whatever right. you can essentially you have to solder it onto the that chip. Yep. Well, uh, or you well, can solder on a connector. Yeah, yep. I got you. Okay. you get, yeah, we'll, we'll we'll absolutely get there. So some other ones I found when I was looking through this stuff. I mean, we could take one of these devices and we could uh, add a GPS to it, and then a little display, and we can put it on our network, and we can make it a an NTP server on nice. a on on a device that's like 
yeah. two, two quarters side by side type right. of thing, a little thicker. Um, but what really fascinated me with this was some of the, the projects that folks started to do with these. Um, and it's a Wi-Fi chipset that is effectively, uh, when you add the uh, ESP8266, it's this one module right here, and then you can add stuff to it. Mm -hmm. uh, in this case, they've added the ability to do serial port uh, so you can upload and download firmware for it. Uh, you can change effectively the operating system, the firmware on these mm -hmm. devices. Uh, the ones that I've been playing with <coughs> are the Node MCU uh, devices, which they're just the ability for us to take that ESP8266 uh, chipset and interface with it. And Node MCU gives you a set of firmware so that you can do stuff with it. The Node MCU firmware allows you to program these devices in Lua. Mm -hmm. and interact with these devices, Wi-Fi, all the pins, you name it. Right, because there's no operating system in its truest sense, <laughs> right. right? It's really just code running directly on the chip, which exactly. is why we call it a SOC. Exactly. Yeah. So there's exactly. not like a Linux kernel that you're loading on it. Correct. It, it's a uh, system on a chip would be the best term I yeah. would use to yeah. describe you're, you're, that. You yeah. are uploading an, uh, an operating system. I think it's more of a real-time operating system. Yes. Um, so you create a program in Lua, you load it on the device, and it does its thing. And there's all sorts of modules to be able to do Wi-Fi stuff and you name it. You can also replace the, quote, uh, bootloader and firmware and such uh, to make them Arduino compa compatible. So if you've ever done any Arduino programming, you, you have an Arduino effectively limited capabilities to mm -hmm. some of the Arduinos, but with built-in Wi-Fi. More functionality when the Lua interpreter is, is on there? Potentially. Okay. It, it, it really becomes down to what you're comfortable programming it in. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a bunch of other stuff that you can add to it for different languages. And so uh, Arduino, you can use their language. You can also do C, C++, um, a bunch of other stuff through Arduino as well. Um, there's also the same base chipset uh, that's in some of the Adir Adafruit, um, either Huzzah or Feather designs. Mm -hmm. So same basic chipset. And uh, um, arguably the Node MCU hardware is um, uh, compatible with those. Uh, and there's a micro Python instance for these. Mm -hmm. So it's a trimmed down Python version. So if you like Python, you could potentially program these things in Python to do fun stuff. The part that really interested me that when I started looking at these things was it's, it's a Wi-Fi chip. And you can do all sorts of fun things with Wi-Fi. Mm -hmm. And I thought about how I could start using these things. And then um, <clears throat> the, the uh, War Collar Industries dope scope came out. Do you remember the, do. the dope scope? Yep. It was the little looking glass thing that you could, with an antenna, and you could move around. It would tell you which Wi-Fi networks were available. Mm -hmm. That was a customized version of the ESP8266. Oh, So you could do Wi-Fi monitoring. Nice. And then you could start doing packet injection and sniffing and, and all this type of stuff, but you had to actually have some... Kind of like we used to do those devices sitting on the shelf over there. Remember those? Yes. Yes. Nokia now these, N800, Nokia N770, right? yeah. yeah. Now, these are not nearly as full-featured. They have yeah. screens and keyboards. Those were Linux uh, devices. That absolutely. was actually written on a yep. Linux kernel. Yep, absolutely Linux derivatives. Yep. Um, so I thought these were pretty neat, and that now we start seeing these actual security tasks that we could potentially perform with some of the, the Wi-Fi stuff. Um, and then the, the big one that turned me on to some of these uh, was um, a gentleman by the name of Stefan Kresmer, Sorry, Stefan Kremser, um, on his GitHub page, uh, created um, a deauthor mm. for these devices. So you flash his, you can compile a code, uh, or you can flash firmware to it. Uh, and I happen to be using, uh, because I'm lazy, the Easy GUI tool, uh, this small one little tool down here. It's the ESP Tool GUI. 
to interface with a command line tool to automatically flash precompiled firmware to these gotcha. devices. Okay. So this is the one that really sort of sold it for, for me for uh, an, a quote, an attack tool or a pen test tool. Uh, because the uh, ESP8266 uh, deauthor um, by SpaceHun um, is pretty darn neat in that you flash it and it has a web interface. You connect to the onboard Wi-Fi of the device that he sets up an access point from the ESP8266. You connect to it, username and password, um, after you've flashed it, powered up, connect to it, and you browse to 192.168.4.1 and it's got a web, interfa web interface. And then you can start interacting with the device, controlling it through the web interface to do network discovery, uh, and then start launching denial service attacks against those networks using deauthentication frames. And it, it has the ability to send the deauth frames while it's still being an access point, or do you lose? You still gain. You still have connectivity. Interesting. Yeah. Um, now it does disconnect you when it does a scan, but it comes back pretty darn quick. I gotcha. Um, and it does a scan, and then you can start launching your attacks and stuff. And you can it, does it dump in a promiscuous mode to do the sniffing? I and that's why it has the deconnect. Uh, no, it's so it's not necessarily putting it in a promiscuous mode because it's looking for beacon frames for all the routers that are available, which are in there in the clear, um, and they will advertise on multiple channels. So, gotcha. I gotcha. Okay. Yeah, it's all available and and uh, easily gathered. Right, right. Um, just like Kismet yeah. does, does it can do channel hopping because it's all done in code in uh, on the device itself mm -hmm. and, uh, with the firmware, which is all available source as well. I thought about this and I'm like, well, that's pretty damn cool. This is an evil freaking tool to do deauths with. I can power this with a small battery. I can set it to do deauths and I can set it and walk away. And I wouldn't care if I lost this. Why? Right. Because the Node MCU platform with the ESP8266 uh, chipset and all of the, the things to make it so you could program it, I got these from China for $4.19. Nice. $4.19. I lose it, no big deal. I lose that in the battery to do deauths. And then I thought, well, that's evil. Why would Why would I want to use it legitimately? Well, think about a good number of the attacks that we're doing against... Uh, Wi-Fi networks to either recover credentials, recover passwords, or do some other type of attack requires uh, deauth. It requires deauth. You want to select? Can it do, are you doing selective deauth, or are you just doing a mass deauth? Uh, you can do. Uh, it does mass deauth currently because that's it's kind of an evil tool. But the code is open and available, and there's no reason we couldn't target specific MAC addresses. Um, and in fact, I've got my... We can actually even look right now. I've got my device that is uh, programmed uh, right now to with the firmware for DOS. So we can switch over. Um, I've uh, gone to the page, and I believe this is... Yeah, it goes a little bit bigger. <clears throat> um, so I'm connected to the Wi-Fi access point. I'm connected to the... No, I'm not. I want to connect it to the pwned network. Um with the password. And I've got the serial output for the device. Uh, it's plugged into my computer. I've got a serial connected to it. It tells you um, the MAC addresses, what channel it's on, um, your SSID, your uh, password currently for the device. So it spits that out on the serial port. It tells you that it's up and it's, uh, it's ready to go. So connecting to the web interface on 4.1, it tells you, hey, you're going to potentially do some evil things. Here's where to get the code. Yeah, I, I think it says, please do not call this project a jammer. Right, because it doesn't jam anything. That would be an FCC violation. Yes. So we can make it do some scanning, and it will disconnect. It will tell us which stations. Um, and we can do, I think you're right, I think we can do specifics. So let's find out. Let's do a scan. 
Okay. Hey, look at G unit. Hmm. Sleep Depot and more. All right. So it's across the street. Yeah. So let's do this one. And let's look at see what we got for stations. Let's do. Which is interesting because I I think they went out of business. <laughs> the, the sleep place someone, across the street. Someone left their access point on. Huh. I okay. So anyway. scan, so scanning for stations, it makes the access point unavailable. So we may yep. See, it just told me now that it's disconnected and G units stronger. So all right, reconnect and reload the site. Yep. Good. Reload. It found a bunch of stations, and including some connected to G unit. Hey, Boop. let's pick something that's not one of our machines working sure. on the show. So it's the uh, the Nest Labs. <clears throat> um, let's see. We can add them manually. Let's go and do the attacks. So you can disconnect my thermostat. We've selected the G unit AP with a Nest Labs station. And yeah, there's two of them. It'd be interesting if it was the one in the studio. And let's we, start. Because it'll tell you once they lose Wi-Fi connectivity. Let's, let's start an attack. We can do probe requests. We can do beacons, all sorts of other fun stuff. So why the, the, the thing that I think is kind of neat about this is that we can do de-auths against specific clients with a $4.50 device from China. As another access point, we can have a GUI tool to be able to do that so that we can do some deauths, seeing which one is disconnected, yeah. <laughs> if any, um, and make that so that we are now uh, doing deauth attacks against that. And instead of spending 50 or $60 on another wireless access point or a wireless access card to be able to do uh, some of our attacks and our deauths at the same time, we can use some other devices, potentially power them off of battery, leave them alone while they're doing the attacks, leave them in an environment for a longer period of time. Yeah, I, I can't change the temperature on the thermostat in the studio. Because you de-offed me. So it did in fact work, by the stop. way. Stop. In case you're wondering. <laughs> I'll stop that. <clears throat> yeah, let's stop. So. That's awesome. <laughs> it works. That's cool. And can you change the temperature now? Is it connected? Back uh, it probably takes a minute or two yeah. to to yeah. reconnect. I'm yeah. not. I'm not sure how long it takes to but actually a reconnect. A fairly ones. easy tool to use with the the deauthor. Uh, oh no, it reconnected now. Oh, nice yeah. on a, on a on a small platform. Very inexpensive. Turn the heat down before we roast in here. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, can absolutely be used to do some legitimate attacks because we do the deauth and now try to try to to reconnect to the network. And if that network was AWPA two. Uh, WPA, WPA2 pre-shared key. We mm -hmm. capture the four-way handshake and now have the opportunity to do uh, password cracking. Cow patty? Cow patty or... Uh, do you still use... It shows how out of the loop I am yeah. with wireless you hacking now. Cow patty. Uh, more importantly, if you capture the four-way handshake, you could then send those to uh, Hashcat. I gotcha. So you do some GPU-based cracking on it. Um, or some, you know, all sorts of stuff. Um, if it was um, uh, WEP... Who cares? <laughs> uh, but Might as well just be an open if, access if it, point. If it was peep, uh, we could absolutely uh, de-auth them to reconnect to our evil access point. So absolutely legitimate tool for doing some, some Wi-Fi testing on the cheap. Uh, that said, uh, there's also a couple of other um, uh, ESP2, ESP8266 uh, firmware for... Um, I got to connect back to G unit for uh, this device as well from uh, from Stefan as well. Um, the um, 
uh, one of the other ones that I was looking at the other day, which I have actually flashed to this one, uh, is a um, uh, deauth detector. So it does some monitoring on a given channel, and it listens for deauth frames. So if we had had plugged this this plugged in and on the right channel, we would have been able to see the deauth attacks with a little blink, blinky light. Lights off, sees deauth frames, blinky light goes on. That's pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, simple deauth detector, even better. Fire one of these up for your deauth detector. Fire off your deauths. Yeah, and make sure it's working. And you know it's working. Yeah. <laughs> and for four dollars and nineteen cents, you can have a bunch of them. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, one of the other ones too that I thought was uh, kind of interesting that I'm actually going to um, uh, build uh, as well. Um, the ESP eighty two sixty six beacon spam. Dear, what was the tool that we used to use eons ago that would just stand up a whole bunch of um, fake access point names. Fake AP? It, well, fake AP. If fake AP was a function of if, some other tool. Yeah, but they, it was like you could spam the whole lot. Yeah. And there was a tool that we yeah, used to use and for that. A super, super old tool. Uh, but similar type of thing, you could just create a whole bunch of fake access points. It beacons out a couple of times and mm -hmm. then it's off and it's gone. Um, it does require a little bit more hardware to make some of those happen. Um, but you can do like 10 or 50 access points right with the built-in. Uh, the other takes some SD card reading and that type of stuff. Um, and then uh, another one by the same gentleman. Uh, so the beacon spam was the other one that I thought was absolutely fantastic. Co combined with uh, the ESP8266, combined with a um, uh, an actual Arduino um, uh, 18Mega32U4 or potentially smaller, USB rubber ducky. Interact with it over Wi-Fi. A Wi-Fi enabled keystroke injector. Oh, interesting. Because the rubber ducky is the thought USB thumb drive shape that has a script that when you plug it in, it becomes a keyboard and does your script. What if you could Wi-Fi enable that and when it's plugged in, access point comes up, you connect to it and then you can tell it what to run and change it or interact with it directly. That's cool. Yeah. So would you connect this, the ESP 8266 to the rubber ducky board? Nope, it's a it's completely it's rubber ducky like mm -hmm. and supports ducky script. Oh, okay. So you turn that you make that you're, your, you're making your own I gotcha. into your I gotcha. own okay. Wi-Fi enabled ducky. That's awesome. Yeah, pretty neat stuff. And for for four bucks, cheap to get into. Uh, if you want to learn Lua, you can do that. If you want to do any Arduino stuff, you could do that. Um, or leverage some of the projects that are out there and uh, you know, add to some of the projects that are out there um, and and make it happen. Part of the original things when I thought about when we've got the deauth is my current favorite attacks is to do the deauth um, and then um, do the deauth and we want them to connect to our own mm -hmm. PEEP server, uh, PEEP-enabled wireless network. What's stopping us from potentially creating our own ESP8266 firmware that contains a Wi-Fi network that is WPA2 uh, PEEP enabled with its own radius server built in? Stripped down radius server that takes in whatever you... Right, yeah. And just like um, uh, host APD-WPE, mm -hmm. or more importantly, um, what is it? Yeah, it's host APD-WPE now. It's not free radius WP. Gotcha. So... Build all of that into a device this size. Mm -hmm. Even better, build two of those, one that does the deauth and one that does the host server. Put those on some batteries and just toss them. 
uh, external antenna connection? None on uh, on these currently. But uh, that said, uh, they're pretty decent. Mm-hmm. Um, and you probably could add your own external antenna. Um, the system on a chip comes on the board with the antenna, and I think you could probably even uh, pull that, I'd venture to guess, and add your own mm-hmm. uh, antenna matrix or something of the like. Uh, but currently, they're, they're supposed to be uh, small, low-powered uh, devices, and mm-hmm. they come with their own onboard antenna. It's awesome. So, neat stuff. Just more more stuff to put in our arsenal to check out. Um, and uh, that said, um, and I also drew some inspiration for looking at some of these stuff uh, from, uh, where was it? Um, the Hacker Arsenal folks, mm-hmm. uh, Vivek, uh, yeah. who does Security Tube. Um, he has a couple of products that are very similar, uh, but his are much more refined and have had lots of hours of code going mm-hmm. into them, um, which I want to talk about at some point. Nice. Uh, because they're they're pretty neat neat devices, and but use a different set of chipsets. You know, it's funny. More we, capability. we spoke earlier about jamming <laughs> attacks, uh, and this is really cool. And I'm glad you covered it on the show. But uh, it, it, I think it was uh, Kyle was going through some of uh, the old computer parts, and you can see over there, one of those is actually the card that I'm told from our friends you can use for jamming. Uh, yep, that would Wi-Fi be the, signals. That would be the the middle one. Um, that's the SMC. Card, uh, yep. 200, and 200 milliwatt output, which is fairly robust for the cards at the time. Um, and that had a test tool for Windows, Windows 98, I might add, uh, that was released uh, on their website to the FCC so that the FCC could do interference testing and such. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was a Windows tool. You plug that in, the SMC card. Um, they put it on their website, and uh, they quickly realized it was out there and uh, took it down because... Um, you start the tool with that card plugged in with a decent antenna on it at high power for that card at the time. Um, and it was basically point, click, and shoot, and it would create continuous noise um, on, a, on a channel and do jamming. I remember someone figured out that there was Linux drivers you could use to enable those same features. Uh, so, yeah, it was a modified Linux driver, um, and uh, Twitchy was one of the first folks to figure what those uh, those calls to the the uh, firmware on that card to make that happen. Uh, I don't know whether he was the first one to find it, but he certainly worked with the folks that did find it, and it was fairly simple. It was like three or four lines of code into the driver yeah. uh, to enable that. It's awesome. Yep. Brings back memories looking at that. It code. does. And it does. Relevant to our existing <laughs> and, conversation. And I, st- and I still have some of that Windows software somewhere. Yeah. Do you have a Windows laptop not- of the PCMCIA slot, I though? do. I actually have several. Because and do they still work? Yes, I have several. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> um, and in fact, that's what, that's one of the jokes when I teach the SANS wireless class. Um, one of the best tools for doing decked-based attacks, uh, digital hands cordless mm-hmm. telephone. Um, some of the best stuff still is PCMCIA. Yeah. And I have a laptop that is um, a Core Duo machine. Not a Core 2 Duo. A, core, a duo. core Duo machine that is still running um, the original hard drive from Dell. Um, wow. And uh, it's a Ubuntu 5 install or an nice. Ubuntu 6 install. <laughs> that's awesome and it works and you don't touch it you yeah, leave it alone exactly, exactly you leave it alone um, but yeah I do have a couple more to be able to support PCMCA stuff that's cool awesome stuff Larry thank yep. you very much uh, with that we're going to take a short break come back talk about security news stay tuned bye 
NetSparker, the developers of desktop and cloud-based web application security scanners that enable you to automatically identify vulnerabilities in your web applications and web services. NetSparker scanners employ a unique and dead-accurate vulnerability scanning engine that automatically verifies vulnerabilities with their proof of concept. For more information, visit them on the web at netsparker.com or email at contact at netsparker.com. Logarithms Netmon Freemium delivers real-time network visibility to quickly identify emerging threats in your IT environment. Netmon Freemium is a free commercial-grade network forensics and traffic analytics solution. You can use Netmon Freemium's powerful capabilities to search against all observed network traffic, identify abnormal traffic patterns and application usage, and quickly analyze full packet captures. Take the first step towards real-time network visibility. Visit logarithm.com forward slash freemium to learn more and download it today. Welcome back everyone to Paul's Security Weekly. This is the security news for this week. I, <clears throat> Larry, I have not dug into this story. I know you were really hot to trot about Heck yeah, the story about um, the, they call them uh, gay dating apps. I don't know, um, I don't know about that. I don't know about that either. I think it's, some of them are more about the hookup rather than like a date, a, a dating, yeah, like a date, right? And. And I think it's more less gay than just, you know, welcome to the 21st century. Yeah, pretty much. Um, there's Grinder and Jacked uh, are two that uh, basically had uh, data leakage vulnerabilities that allowed uh, miscreants to determine uh, who was using the site and leak their personal information, huh. which in in some cases uh, they weren't publicly open about their sexual orientation. Oh. Which uh, is problematic for users of those sites. So, uh, yeah. and I didn't get, there weren't a lot of technical uh, details here. Uh, it is, in fact, the first time we've covered a story from gaytimes.co.uk. It's disappointing that your information's on the dark web again. Yeah. <laughs> <It's true. laughs> no, but not, not, to, not to make light of it. Um, that's a really not cool thing to do. Um, yeah, because it's not. I, I mean, like the Ashley Madison brought yeah, to light people doing yeah. not ethical do things. things. These are groups of people that, or or uh, maybe ethical people thinking that they were or trying to lead on that they were doing. Well, I, things, I think it's still, the intention of the people who published published the site, right? Were was to encourage the uh, non ethical behavior, right? These <clears> sites, <throat> while I'm sure, like any other site, there's unethical behavior going on. Sure. But these sites, are, to my knowledge, aren't like promoting the fact that right. these are, should be anything unethical. Yeah, two consenting adults that right. that that, uh, that may be in a in a point in our society that it's still uh, considered taboo by certain groups of folks. And, and um, every week we're hearing more and more about uh, data being uh, exposed uh, through S3 buckets that oh, are just God. unprotected. Like it seems like every week we could pick a story that is someone's personal information that was part of a larger breach, uh, you know, kind of of this nature. It seems to be a growing trend. It is. It is. And this is also kind of disturbing because <clears throat> we think about, you know, you, you mentioned the S3 buckets thing in that the the move to cloud services, I, again, I still think that so many people think that we've moved to the cloud. We don't have to think about security because someone's thinking about it for us. We don't have to have a WAF. We don't have to do intrusion detection. We don't have to do any monitoring. Um, we don't have to do any account privilege permission. What they forgot was it's all about the information, Marty. And just because you weren't protecting your data internally doesn't mean, you know, also means when they go into the cloud, they're not of the right security mindset of protecting the data. Right. 
And now technology has allowed it so easy for that data to fall into the wrong hands. I mean, right. years ago, we'd cover when Dropbox came out, people yeah. were doing this with Dropbox. Yep. So it's not the technology. It's the fact that technology has evolved to make it so easy for people to share data. And they're just doing too much sharing of data <laughs> right now. Because every week now we hear about abuses of technology or really the lack of data protection uh, coming to light where a service is just accessed because you're sharing that data. So. Right, right. And, and, you know, we, we talked about this and, you know, the, again, IOTA, the Internet of Things attack methodology um, that is still yet unreleased. Um, one of the things we talked about was that ecosystem and that, that, that data is part of that ecosystem for your IoT device. <laughs> yeah, and I'll, I'll say, and I said it on, I don't know if it was last week's show or a show, uh, I believe, last week where, I really believe that all the research that we've done, Larry, into embedded systems and IoT uh, and continue, you're obviously continuing that research into smaller devices, the security concerns for me are really related to consumer-based IoT and the mishandling of your data and the privacy exposures that happen as a result of that. It, yeah, right. someone could hack my fridge. To me, the concern was, could they derive information about me that is somehow used against me the, or used the, for profit without my yeah. knowledge, right? You know what I'm eating, so you know my dietary restrictions. And maybe <laughs> that gets leaked. My <clears throat> health, health information. Yep. Or, I don't know about your washer and dryer, but, you know, like how would that right. but still, play but into it? But the, still, the, all there's these... Still, there's still data that's there that you can... You know, it's it's metadata, and, you know, uh, me and metadata, we go way, we go way back. That's true. Um and what information is collected? Do you know whether that information is being collected? How is it stored? What can you do with it? What yep. type of analysis, quote, through big data analysis can... Oh, the Strava can breach yeah, the, was where I was going the, right. The, like, the Strava. Strava, sorry. And it wasn't breach. It was information uh, that's really available. They were gave that information away yeah. uh, freely. You're correct. Sorry. And, like, the whole thing wasn't like that someone was hacking Bluetooth to get onto their devices. It was... No about the data it was about the data and the aggregation of that data from iot devices what type of data is being collected how is it being used who has access to it do you even know that some of that data is being collected um it's funny right now we're talking about how big data is wait a minute that was rsa 10 years ago was big data yeah. and i think it's really now coming to light largely i think it's iot that's bringing it yep to light. Yep. And it's funny that well, I had an announcement too. I totally my, forgot. We'll do that. And uh, in my Facebook feed uh, today for memories, uh, it was a uh, Facebook post from our good friend Ben Jackson mm -hmm. um, in a smear uh, who was uh, put on Facebook that, hey, Larry and I were at ABC 10, our yeah. local uh, talking news about affiliate, metadata. talking about our I Can Stock You project. And that was in 2011. Wow. I do have an announcement. InfoSec World is March 19th through the 21st uh, of this year in Orlando, Florida, in Disney World's Contemporary Resort. Yay. There'll be lots of uh, fun talks going on. I will be speaking. Uh, we will have a booth there. We're going to be doing all kinds of fun stuff. You can save 15% off the conference with the discount code OS18-SW. So make sure you do that. Yar. <clears throat> Alrighty. Announcements out of the way. Now what are we talking about? Oh, well, speaking of IoT stuff, Larry. Yeah. Smart TV. Some, uh, how real is the, the threat from smart TVs? I think it's what we were just talking about, that it potentially could be more about privacy than it is about hacking, although I think ransomware certainly plays a role in your TV. We did see a very, very small isolated case of that, I believe, last year. 
But if you looked into security TVs or like, what are your thoughts on these smart TVs? We've talked about the smart TVs for for quite some time, because um, there's been issues all around, and you know, there was some Samsung issues and and a bunch of other ones. The one that I wanted to really dig into, and I didn't get a chance to, and I'm glad you added the story, uh, was that uh, Roku uh, was in that list. Yes, and uh, the one that. Because I have a couple of Roku's, um, which they're still brand new in the box, and it was basically one of those I was gonna put it in my bag to travel with, so that I could watch whatever I wanted when sure. I was on the road and and get out of the suck of whatever was on TV in the hotel room, which I actually successfully did uh, when I traveled this uh, this week. Mm-hmm. I didn't turn on the TV in the hotel room, um, and uh, I watched what I wanted to watch when I wanted to watch it. <clears throat> um, because I picked up a bunch of uh, Amazon uh, Fire HDs mm-hmm. at Christmas time when they were on sale, mm-hmm. and used my Amazon Prime account to download a bunch of shows and uh, watch those. Right, and uh, did that. Um, so the Roku one is sort of the you know my my thought about cutting the cutting the cord and having some of those. Uh, and they were didn't get a chance to look into it, but looking at the article was that hackers can apparently commandeer your TV via the Roku. Uh, to change the channel, raise the volume, or worst of all, play random YouTube videos. They can't spy on you or steal personal information, but it could be pretty unsettling. And they, I think they, that the way they were saying that they needed to conf- infect your computer or mobile device that's connected to the same Wi-Fi as your TV. Hmm. Hmm. And, and that was for the TV, not the Roku player? Uh, no, that was Roku. Gotcha. But Roku is also built into a bunch of televisions. Oh, that's right. It is. Yeah, it's an app. The devices are always interesting because it has those open uh, communications ports that you can use to control them uh, remotely. I always thought that was interesting. I don't think ever, anything really ever came of it. Roku is very much a closed system, so if it has undergone some security scrutiny, we certainly haven't heard about it. Yep, yeah, this is the first one that I remember seeing that involved. That involved Roku. So this was, uh, but Samsung definitely. (laughs) A study for Consumer Reports found that Samsung smart TVs are susceptible to hacking. We've known about this for quite some time. For a long time. time. Yeah, we've talked about this. And usually it stems to be enabling the camera to spy on people. Yep. I don't know what the uh, economic motivations are for attackers Mm. uh, to, in fact, do that. Uh, There's some interesting cases where people built up those lists of uh, baby monitors. I believe they were selling some of those lists, yep. uh, which is just creepy in and of itself. Um, so for a creep factor, we should pay attention to that, certainly. Um, I think more interesting for me would be when ransomware on your TV becomes more prevalent. <sighs> and I'm not sure, what, no, maybe, I, maybe because mostly it's attacking the consumer. That mm-hmm. has It's not a business, and the ransom likely will not be paid where if it's a business and business functions are down mm-hmm. they're more likely to pay a higher ransom for that which is yep. why i think that caught on although cryptocurrency mining is certainly taken over oh, and maybe that trickles into iot devices like tvs but i think the more immediate threat for the consumer is interesting enough for the business i mean because in a business if a tv's ransomware like whatever if you're a consumer and that's the device oh. you're using to watch tv on uh and it gets ransomware that could be as important right. as one of your computing devices. Right. I mean, you think about the business that depending on where that device is being used, that ransomware is an annoyance. 
Um, in an and, airport, certainly, uh, all the TV screens. Yeah, or yeah, in some place like a knock or a sock or mm-hmm. any of those types of things. You just go and replace the damn TVs, and right, you might be okay. But it depends on how you're using those. Were you using the Wi-Fi type? connectivity to support your operations and then do the new yeah, ones get owned? Uh, Open DNS did a study a while back and actually found that one of the most prevalent uh, IoT devices they found in enterprises based on the data they're collecting was in fact televisions. Mm-hmm. Because most organizations, the oh, you know, someone ordered a TV, flies under the radar of IT and security, yet yep. by default that Wi-Fi stuff uh, is enabled yep. and that smart TV stuff functionality largely is probably not being used in a corporate setting. Oh, I bet. No, I, bet, I, bet they, I bet they are in that they're. Uh, well, it could be because you can stream content yeah, to directly to TV, so they might you're, be. Yeah. You're enabling them in your conference rooms instead of having a projector. <clears throat> mm-hmm. uh, you're enabling the devices in your conference room directly to connect the TVs to display their content, um, you know, slides and so forth, right, and right. meeting notes, and even you know stuff like WebEx and, and you name it, um, something like that. Instead of having a projector, you have a TV that does all it these does other Android things. Android TV, essentially. Yeah. And most of them are based on Android. Yep. Some of them, anyway. Yep. Android. Now, there's a terrifying thought. It sure is. Well, uh, it, and while we're on the topic of uh, entertainment systems, I'm sure Alicia is going to remind us we need to do a cutting, cutting the, cord the cord segment. Yeah, which I'm still working on. Yes. And I had some huge wins today, and it was it was amazing. Uh, My solution's on the more expensive side. Um, but I was telling you I settled on the NVIDIA Shields, yep. which essentially just run Android yep. uh, directly on the device. And you can put most Android apps right on it. Yep, and uh, I settled for a Shield uh, in our living room. We have, still haven't cut the cord yet because we're still heavily invested in uh, it's taking me some time to make the make the switch. But uh, we settled on a little bit lower-end NVIDIA Shield uh, for streaming content, mm-hmm. um, mostly from our local library. Um, I've got my... Local library moved to a different machine, but I had a massive failure in my library. Ooh. Um, when you're moving media from your iTunes library, it's all stored on disk and M4Vs. Mm-hmm. But in that each directory, there's also another M4V that's like 56 bytes that contains metadata. And if you do the copy and you do the co- sorry, if you do the move and you do the move wrong, you move your 56 byte M4Vs over the full movie. Uh, and you overwrite, and then you have video play video files that are unplayable. Oh, that and, sucks. And I did that with more than half of my library. Oh no! So I lost half of my content. Uh, but it was it was nice because I had a directory listing of all the content that I had, mm-hmm. and then I could just go back and re-add those titles to the services. Oh yeah, because you can re-download them from from iTunes. Or re- yeah. well, no, they weren't iTunes content. They were oh, the ones content. you ripped. I they were you. ripped content from various sources. <laughs> But as a result, what I did was that sometimes I had requested those titles from a service that I may subscribe to mm-hmm. and ripped them, but when I already had DVDs or I bought the DVDs later. Gotcha. So what I'm doing in the process is I have a stack of DVDs in my office, and every day I go to work, throw a DVD in, rip, DVD in. Yeah, I, I've been doing that with my DVD, music. My music, DVD, my music collection <laughs> and other people's music. People just bring in their music collections now. Yep. And <laughs> just ripping. Boop, 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 boop. Yep. So all the content that I own is going streaming so that I can put those DVDs in storage. Right. And get them out of the entertainment center and use them for something else. Mm-hmm. Um, the, but the, oh, but the thing with Android devices, where I was going with the, the Fire TVs and yeah. the other devices you can build, is they suffer from inherent vulnerabilities that are present in Android, such mm-hmm. as if you've enabled the installation of third-party apps mm-hmm. 
and or debugging uh you can put apps on there and you can put a trojan app on there mm-hmm. which is very easy to do in the android platform very uh that gives attackers a shell or potentially the ability to take over your device yep <coughs> yep i uh, and those are some of the reasons why i'm not a fan of the the whole android ecosystem um, I will use Android-based devices because some of them offer some functionality that I don't have elsewhere. Uh, for example, my the, the Kindle Fire uh, HDs mm-hmm. that I picked up, uh, they're all Android-based. Uh, Android-based, but Amazon's really bastardized Android. Nah, not too bad. <clears throat> well, they have their own app ecosystem. Right, but you can add... Oh, but you but can you add can your own. Add, you can add yeah, your that's own. You, that's when people say they're going to jailbreak your Fire TV... That's all they mean is they're just, they uh, they're that. installing an Android app on it. It's all they're doing. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And that's exactly what I did too. So I have, we have three fires. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have one that is going in our kitchen so that it can access a local wiki with all of our recipes and access mm-hmm. the internet for recipes. So you don't have to have these tons of papers and it's going to go right on the cabinet right above where you are. Um, the other one is one that sits on the nightstand next to the bed because. Why not? The kids and the wife, they all manage to sleep in. I wake up at 630 every morning. On a Saturday, everyone's sleeping. Everyone's sleeping. That's good. And what do I do? I just I relax because this is the only time I do. So I pick up the tablet and I, I Facebook, right. I play some games, um, and then I haven't jailbroken that one. But the one that I travel with has the Google Play Store on it. Mm-hmm. I can put whatever the hell I want on it. Right. And it's it was install three APKs that you download from here. It goes to your downloads folder and you go double click. Yep. Do you want to install this? Yes, I do. I think you had to enable developer mode or something. You do. Like that. Yeah. Yeah. ADB debugging, yeah. yeah, something like that. No, it was, yeah, it was simple. Android debugger. Yeah, it, yeah. Was, it was simple. But yeah, install those three packages. Now you've got the Google Play Store and you can put anything you want out of the Google Play Store in it. So It's awesome. And it's interesting. I, those devices that I bought are supposed to be ad-supported. I haven't seen a single ad. Interesting. <laughs> like on the lock screens and stuff. I haven't seen any ads. Yeah, I'm surprised they haven't been more of a target because I, I think they're so much more prevalent today oh my in gosh. people's home entertainment systems even yeah. than a year ago yep i mean amazon is selling the crap out of those devices and more and more mm-hmm. uh non-technology folks are like oh i really need to hack my fire stick and people mm-hmm. saying that all the time now and it is just opening up another platform for attackers to take advantage of to either i think serve ads or the ransomware route or maybe in today's world use those for crypto mining yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. It, over the last it becomes couple, a device for the attackers. The last couple of weeks, crypto mining would have been really lucrative for you. <clears throat> yep. Not so much for those that bought when they were on the up. Yeah, <laughs> it's true. <laughs> but that's another story altogether, right? Oh, and there was a really, this one was how to protect your smart TV from being hacked. Didn't like it. I just didn't. It missed the mark for me. Wait, which one was that? Uh, it was my story number two. Oh. They talked about this study. Oh, that was the one. That was the it, one that I looked at uh, for the story. The story I thought we were talking about. Oh yeah, there was two on the on the same subject, but they they really didn't do a good job of defense. <laughs> really, your defense is uh, turn everything off on your smart TV, <laughs> especially if it runs Android. <sighs> really? Yes. Yeah. Pretty much. Alrighty. Uh, Larry, what do you got? Uh, what's what is LeakBase? LeakBase. So, uh, LeakBase, uh, was actually kind of, kind of interesting. Uh, LeakBase was a, um, a, uh, hacked password service. So, uh, those folks that had passwords leaked, you know, we talked about Skull Security that has the list of all the passwords and such. 
that were collected that were yep. cracked and stuff. Uh, Leak base had additional stuff. Um, similar that, to Have I Been Pwned? Similar to Have I Been Pwned, yep. Um, but lots of, you know, uh, already compromised credentials, great for building password lists, already great to see if some of your, if you're doing pen test or your own stuff, to see if your credentials are there, mm-hmm. uh, whether you should change them or not. Um, but it was a subscription service. Um, they got uh, acquired uh, earlier in 2017 by, uh, quote, new management. Um, and then all of a sudden, uh, it went dark mm. after they did a paid breach notification service. Oh, interesting. Mm. So, uh, Krebs. So they got hacked and funding pulled out. Yep, pretty much. Pretty sounds, much. That's they, what it sounds like. I'm yep. just speculating. And then, uh, and then Krebs uh, associated that uh, leak base uh, was uh, shut down because of their association with the uh, Hansa Black Market Place uh, raids mm-hmm. by the Dutch police. Uh, in that, uh, folks involved with leak base had dabbled in selling illicit drugs on Hansa, hmm. which uh, they claim was untrue. Interesting. Either way, uh, it's kind of sad that LeakBase went away um, for some reasonably uh, priced services. It was great access to additional stuff for for your ops, for, for Red Team, whether mm-hmm. it be to determine passwords that already existed, to gather passwords across multiple organizations for including in your password lists, and all sorts of other fun stuff. So it's sad to see it go. I, I'd like to talk about your story number two, Larry, because yeah. I think we haven't talked about ILO. Oh my gosh, yeah. Is we that haven't, we haven't uh, talked about ILO in a long time? I don't think it, it. It's gone through so many iterations over the years. I want to say at one time it was called RILO, Remote Insight Lights Out Management, something like maybe, that. Maybe, maybe a long time ago. Yep. And now it's ILO four. Is that the latest version of uh, the? No, ILO five, I believe, is the latest version. ILO okay. five is relatively new. Okay. <clears throat> um, but ILO four is quote the the largest one in production for the the new stuff uh, as and it is. Is this on HP Dell? Yep, HP. HP. Okay, HP. It's specific um, to HP. Yes, it's HP's technology. Um, I don't know whether um, <clears throat> the ILO gets used elsewhere, but I want to say that it does. Yeah, Dell used to have their own. It was called Drac, Drac or something, yep, right? Dell Remote Access yep. Control. Yep. Um, but I wouldn't be it, surprised. Essentially, if, for those listeners out there, these are. Essentially, embedded systems right. inside so of your system. server. Right. In the embedded al- system inside of your system. Right. right. If you, yeah. I hear you like embedded systems, so I put an embedded so system, system inside system of your system. system. Yeah. Um, that allow administrators remote access to essentially the motherboard and all and all hardware mm-hmm. directly, mm-hmm. so they can power off, power on remotely, or in, my in, favorite, get a terminal shell on the operating yep. system. In, in some cases, uh, some cases RDP, VNC right. type style. <coughs> uh, it's like a back. It's essentially a backdoor into your system systems. for remote administration. Right. right. It saves if your data center's in the same building. It saves you a trip down the stairs. Oh, of course. As time went on, remote data centers became more popular, and this feature became even more uh, prevalent as data center space was pretty cheap. Yep. One one of the the favorite ones um, that we uh, got permission to do many years ago. Uh, when I, when I, one of the first times I started in Guardians um, was that uh, uh, the customer had ILO. Uh, there was some issues with ILO where you could get uh, uh, uncredentialed access mm-hmm. by with some buffer overflow, not buffer overflows, some authentication overflows. Um, you could get usernames and passwords and then you could authenticate. Uh, and as part of that, uh, you had the ability to reboot the box, but you could also tell it to boot with a new image, whether it be PXE, Pixie. Uh, or a remotely mounted CD. 
So conceive of what, what we got permission to do in this one case was to, um, uh, we were able to connect to ILO. We could demonstrate this functionality, but we found a server that was um, like dev and wasn't mm -hmm. used uh, nearly as, it wasn't in production. So we had mm -hmm. the ability to reboot it and manipulate it with permission. Um, but we used um, uh, ILO functionality to mount a remote CD-ROM of uh, bootable Kali, rebooted it and booted it remote Kali for us. That's awesome. In their environment. So we put their attack tools on their hardware mm -hmm. in their environment. In their data center. In their data center. That's great. Yeah. So uh, the the tools that uh, that are there are from um, uh, Airbus. And I think Airbus is uh, HD Moore's new company. Because, oh, I haven't caught up with what HD's yeah, been doing lately. me either. But uh, I picked this up from uh, some stuff from HD Moore for the ILO 4 toolbox. Um, and, um, this particular, the ILO 4 toolbox from Airbus, um, from, uh, some tools from their recent recon, uh, talk, um, all sorts of fun stuff. So there's a, um, uh, authentication bypass, um, which allows you to become authenticated into, uh, the system, get the users and passwords and, uh, remote code execution. The part that I find that is absolutely fascinating about once you're authenticated and the remote code execution, with the remote code execution, they have the ability to interact with um, uh, a host operating system uh, Linux kernel mm -hmm. and inject payload directly into memory over ILO. Mm. So think about that your management interface has access to the host memory, which we, there's an authentication bypass in, which you can then inject your own code directly into memory and trigger execution. That's awesome. So effectively, you have remote code execution with no authentication required over ILO. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah, ILO's always been a great way into systems. Yep, and to do all sorts of fun stuff. For sure. Yeah, Paul's now doing recon on Airbus. I, it doesn't, I don't see anything. But you, but the, the sad part is, is, so Airbus Sec Lab, and the logo is the same. Yeah, one of the researchers that did this is from Airbus. Airbus yep. apparently is a $79 billion company. Yeah, that does uh, aerospace stuff. Yeah. They yeah. do airplanes. We've right. probably flown on a whole bunch of Airbuses. Right, yes, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, I don't, I don't see where HD more plays into it, but. I don't know. I, I, I picked this up from a, a tweet that uh, 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 H.C. Moore had released. So gotcha. I don't, he may have had some involvement or thought it was neat. But, uh, and uh, we were talking about this at, at work release recently and uh, that uh, some of our security conscious folks that we have working for us said that the previous employers that they had been with, they had designed their management networks appropriately so ILO was on their management network um, even though with uh, lots of pushback from the admins and stuff yeah I always made the admins I put it on a completely separate uh, network segment mm -hmm. and gave it its own firewall mm -hmm. uh, and only allowed the admins to access it and greatly restricted uh, mm -hmm. its outbound and controlled but, it very but tightly. But so many people just throw that on their local network. Oh my God. And that's the wrong way to deploy it. Yep. I, even for 
operational reasons, mm-hmm. you don't want it on your network. Never mind security, just operationally. Right. The the whole purpose of it is to gain remote access in case <clears> something <throat> goes wrong. If it's on your network and your something is wrong with your network, yep. Then you can't gain access to the remote well, access just, of your system. Yeah. So I I actually now thinking about it, the architecture that I had was not just a separate subnet. But uh, separate, separate physical infrastructure. Yeah, networking infrastructure as yep. separate as I could get it from the main infrastructure. Right. So, like, if we lost a like, core switch or router, right, you can still gain access to the to the servers. Right. And now, and I think about back. I think about this stuff. And you remember when we talked about our what our home firewalls and small business firewall type stuff was? Mm-hmm. We talked about PFSense and OpenSense and the yeah. hardware that we built that on. Um, the motherboard that I included as part of that segment actually has ILO type functionality built into it. Well, that's interesting. It's not ILO because, of course, that's an HP product, but it has the ability to do remote management. Mm-hmm. And I haven't figured out a way to turn that off. <clears throat> yeah, that's the problem with a lot of embedded systems as we as we have seen yeah. is you get functionality. Sometimes that functionality is a security exposure. Yep. And, and there's no way to turn it off. And now that I'm thinking about that, I don't know what interfaces that's exposed on. And yeah. that's my firewall. Right. I gotta go. <laughs> gotta go. Gotta go. <sighs> Although I would argue that um, uh, on the outside, uh, PFSense is uh, filtering those ports already so you would hope i would hope i think so <clears throat> uh so what else we got paul so, it was, it was, yeah, a, it was just, a really slow news week this week for it, whatever reason it was it was um and my news reader just had a hissy fit uh today i couldn't i couldn't get it working luckily yeah. uh insider tip i use flipboard on my phone which lets me flag uh-huh flag stories yep uh, so i moved and i'm not happy with it um I moved to Reader mm-hmm. on my Mac, which is where I've always done yeah. my RSS stuff. I think stuff. you still use ReadKit. Yeah, I was using ReadKit up until fairly recently. and then It, it seems w- like ReadKit has really gone in the shitter. Yep, and uh, ReadKit used to crash every 30 minutes on me. Yeah. And I, so I said, all right, I need to find something else. Reader, um, R-E-E-D-E-R is good, but the flow isn't the same and it's I, not I it's stuff. readkit does have a, a certain flow to it that because i got used to readkit was like a clone of net newswire which yes. is what we started with which is maybe that's why we, we have a tough time with anything else because yep. that's what we <clears throat> yep. came up on yep and re, you know reader it's great that it marks all your unread stories and then when you write read the stories it's like impossible for me to find stuff that i've already read and so i've got a command key that sends it to instapaper so you can flag it. Yep. Well, see, that's that's some of the things. Like, I'll read something, and I'm like, oh, shit, I want to go back to that. Because mm-hmm. I remember that. I saw that, like, 10 minutes ago in another story that I want to go back and grab that other story, and it's 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 gone. It's gone. I'm like, fuck. Um, so I, it, it, amazingly, uh, even with my RSS reader being down, uh, I found some stories on Flipboard, which admittedly weren't all that great. Um, but it says your security starts and ends. If your security starts and ends with bug bounties, you're going to have a bad time. DJI. <laughs> uh, I mean... Uh, and, and then it goes on to talk about the U.S. Senate and uh, probing the uh-huh. uh, CEO and founder of Uber yep. uh, over their breaches. Yep. And uh, CEO so was- basically admitting that they made a mistake. That was... Uh, and he's sorry. Yeah, and uh, Katie Maceres. Katie Maceres, yep. Yep, testifying before the Senate. Uh, and that was also interesting. Uh, that was uh, uh, also really great. Uh, Chris Weisopel. 
uh, tweeted out a picture because he was back testifying uh, before the Senate uh, mm-hmm. at the same time. I don't know if it was part of the same um, uh, testimony, but when he arrived at the White House, they uh, they provided him a gift. Oh, like welcome back? Pretty much. It was a very much a welcome back. It was that infamous picture of Loft yes, yes. testifying before Congress. They had that picture on a tripod for him to take. Oh, that's awesome. Of them with the whole with the whole group with Brain Oblivion and Tan mm-hmm. and yep. uh Kingpin and Mudge and um Space Rogue. Space Rogue and Chris Weisopel was Dildog? No. No. That's the other guy. Sorry. Sorry guys. I'm getting confused. We've had them on the show before too. Yes. Yes. Of course, the one that well, I'm talking about. Well, well, well Pont. Well, well, yep. And there's probably one that I forgot. But they had that <laughs> and, iconic uh, picture there for him to take. And you know it's a slow news night because I'm, I'm just looking at the picture of Katie and her hair looks stunning. It does. It's it, absolutely stunning. I mean, I wish I could have hair like that when I testified. I, it, yeah, like the, and the way it makes the transition from, from dark to, to pink, it's just, it's stunning. Katie, yeah. job, job well done. Your, well hair, done. your hair looks fabulous. Done, and not even the hair. Job well done on. Oh, yeah. And she said smart things, too. Uh, oh, my God. She, amazingly <laughs> smart she things. Because she's Katie. To hell with the hair. I mean, <laughs> Katie said damn smart things. Uh, actually, I think, not, I think let, it was a quote from Katie that kind of yeah, fueled let, let, the, if you're not, relying on bug bounties solely uh, or too much, that your security uh, is in grave danger. The, uh, the abject title of the story. So let's not let Katie's hair overshadow her words. Because and, and it does look fabulous. I'm just saying. It does. But you know what? Katie's not about just the hair. She's more about the words. Oh, I know. But I'm still very... <laughs> I know you're... Enam- I'm enamored with, with Katie's hair, okay? Mm-hmm. I get... You know it's, what? It's awesome. You know what? I'm just jealous because, well, first, I don't have much hair to speak of, so... Right. But you know what? Bucket list. Bucket list. What, to have hair that looks as good as Katie's? No. Because that ship sailed, just saying yeah, for no. me. No, no. Testify before Congress. Oh, testify before Congress. Or before the Senate. Okay. Yep. Because you know what, Katie? I want to be like you. Uh, she says the, uh, they're not a cost-effective replacement for penetration testing, <laughs> among other security measures as well. And not to downplay that bug bounties aren't important. Right. But uh, I think what the gist of it is that you, companies have lost sight of what security means, and they can get lazy and say well we have a bug bounty program so that excuses us from doing other due diligence or other types of protections Mm -hmm. to increase the effectiveness of their security architecture not to put words in katie's mouth but i think that's absolutely it is that if you replace your pen testing program with a bug bounty program it is likely that there are too many restrictions placed on your bug bounty program yep, that we that's would, one thing that would you would never put on a pen test well of course and it's also lack of and again there are private bug bounty programs that mm-hmm. i'm sure there's varying degrees of this sure. but in a typical public bug bounty where you put out the restrictions it's very much a hands-off approach and you're not providing right. direction so anyone's going to find any kind of bug and any kind of mm-hmm. logic and there's no uh there's no focus uh, that that you can provide other than the restrictions, which is not focused. Those are limitations. Yep. That and and that said, I think also you could have a bug bounty program and you could have really crappy payment 
and no one participates. Right. I mean, you could pay a little bit amount of money for a really crappy pen test, and you'd have known participation. You could put a <clears throat> bug bounty program out there with really crappy payment and have no participation. And you think you're secure because no one participates. Right, because no one yeah, wants. Yeah, exactly. It, it, you're absolutely right. How do you measure success? A, a bug bounty program in the terms of success when if you're not getting any uh, bounties that you're paying out, does that mean that people aren't finding bugs or they're not looking? You know what? I think we need to have Katie back to talk about some of the stuff. Sure. Absolutely. Well, Katie's welcome anytime. Absolutely. Because her, her hair is fabulous. <sighs> did I say that already? Did I mention? That? You did. <laughs> I think you mentioned the hair. I think so. <sighs> uh, a massive cybercrime network of over 4 million stolen credit cards. Is that the number that they're, is that how they're judging this? There's 36 people and uh, 4 million credit card numbers before it was shut down. Uh, essentially, I think that's the one where they uh, were basically uh, trading data. And it uh, went online which I thought was really kind of not passe, but more uh, 9,000 potential victims. I want to say they had 10,000 users on their forum. Um, but not that it was, but I feel like attackers, as we've interviewed folks and, and kept up with the news, you know, throughout the past year or so. And of course, you love websites that play video. Again, I told you the sources I get these stories from are, you're well, this absolutely. Is, this is CNET. Oh, God. It, it, yeah, sorry. I apologize for my stories uh, this week. No, but, but CNET's a reputable source. It is a reputable really source, one but for one that ads. you go to and they want to pop a video up. And I thought you, I thought you did a pop, an ad blocker. So I do, and I, I do, I, and I, point. I do have an ad blocker enabled in my browser, and there is a DNS ad blocker on the network, and they still—that's kind of frightening. Mm -hmm. And this, I is, am going to be and, reinstalling Linux on my laptop tonight. And, um, and this is why <laughs> I turn my sound off. Yes, I, how did my be, sound? Because even get better, turned back on. Even better, because uh, you I'm, visit sites I'm during on, the show that you don't want to hear the sounds. Uh, uh, I mean, uh, but I'm visiting the site, and I actually can't close the movie because the X is under the scroll bar. <laughs> on the, they did that on purpose, they you know, did. Larry. They did. I've got, it, I've got it, like two pixels I can click on to click on this thing. It's probably because you're using a MacBook from 2011. <laughs> you did. Someone did try and call you out on that on Twitter, by the way. They did. They and did. Okay. I was laughing hysterically, by the way. And you know what? It's fine because it still fucking works. <laughs> it still works. And I've saved myself so much in Apple tax right now. <laughs> <laughs> you have. You have. You get the most out of it. Oh, my God. I, mean, I, I love this machine. Oh, so what I was saying was the, yeah. the trend. I really have noticed is the movement away from credit cards and uh, identity as being a valuable commodity on the black market. However, that still seems to be really very much a, a, sure. a staying force uh, today. But the newer uh, investments are in ransomware, in crypto mining, mm -hmm. uh, in DDoS for hire. And we still see those yeah. things uh, being very lucrative. However, I think one of the staples of the underground uh, economics is, of course, trading of personal identity. I think the prices mm -hmm. come way down, yep. but it still seems to me, again, the experts that I talk with, if you've got a different perspective, we'd love to hear it, um, that that's still very much the foundation. I think what, what underscores that is I was watching some documentary TV show, I forget which one, it might have been called, Decept there was one on Viceland, uh, I watched oh, yeah. a, lot of <coughs> a lot of Viceland yep. uh, lately. 
and there was one that was uh, looking at organized crime today. Yeah. And they kind of chronicled the history, uh, which is fascinating. But they said today, largely, they uh, the mob plays a very important role in a lot of this underground trading of uh, identity theft and profiting uh, from that. Which, again, I thought was kind of interesting that that's still a staple of the economics. Sad. And, you know, it's always been about the money with organized crime and even some of the the hacking yeah. such that but the well again when you think about organized mo- crime it's uh involved in the trade in some way yeah. of illegal goods or and or information which is about them ultimately about i the mean money. it was born from prohibition which was the obviously selling of buying and selling of what right. was then well, illegal which was alcohol and it was definitely born before that for sure sure um, i mean that's when it was really in its prime and a really good example of it's a, a general good so now on the uh the black market if you want to purchase identity information obviously that's like any other illicit material or information uh and you know the mob is involved uh and of course a lot of other organized uh yep. crime the, the, across the, the world the, is the mob organized crime whichever country they may be yeah um but i think that's absolutely true that cyber criminals and folks that are looking to profit from some of that. Um, it's about money, but the financial game changes depending on what the environment looks like. Uh, yeah, right, well, right, if you right remember now, watching The Sopranos, and I don't remember the the scam, but it, but they explained it on the show. They were basically involved with phone cards. Yeah. Right? It, yeah. It, but now technology has progressed like you, you don't nearly need a phone card anymore. If you want to call someone and they got a computer and internet, you use Skype or any other kind of yeah, or FaceTime. You, or, you don't have to clone someone's card to get free service anymore because right. you go buy a card that you bought with Bitcoin. Right. Or there's other communications yeah. that have uh, technology that is allowed for communications, I should say, that make those phone cards uh, essentially... Yeah. Uh, obsolete but yeah. when those were the technology right again i remember sopranos and they were talking about some kind of scam where they were profiting from that i feel like that just keeps evolving uh over time yeah, it was, it's uh, certainly i mean uh, it makes uh, sense that they would they would evolve to the technology of today i haven't seen the the soprano stuff to, to comment well enough but uh but yeah cloning the the cards to get free cell phone service for whatever um you well, not sim card i'm talking about like a telephone like a phone card like you buy oh. long distance minutes, oh, yeah, sorry, yeah, yeah. on uh, like a, a credit card, but it's only it's good for got it. minutes on a phone. Okay, yeah. got it. So this is like, old, don't way forget, old Sopranos school. came out yeah, a long yeah. time ago. Yeah, way old school. Yeah. But then, of course, the next thing was SIM cards. Right, right. Yeah. The, it's it's all about the money. It's just that the business model and the technology around that business model has changed. Yep. And how you profit from that business model and how you profit from the technology. Yep. Yep. And I, I know we talked a long time ago um, about turning uh, Android devices into Bitcoin miners. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was very much like, why would anyone turn a phone into a Bitcoin miner? And it wasn't about phone. It was about scale. Mm-hmm. It was about tens or hundreds of thousands of phones that they were turning into Bitcoin miners to right. mine a fraction of a coin. At the time, seemed daft. Like, dude, you're going to turn... 100,000 phones into Bitcoin miners and you're going to get $100. Yeah, but now your $100 is a lot more. Well, 
depending on the day yeah, or the yeah. we the day it could be a varying number sure it, but and 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 it's funny cuz for a while you know bitcoin was up at $20,000 at bitcoin mm -hmm. and uh it just hit just sub $8,000 this earlier this week or wow. late last week and uh you know quote market correction or whatever and of course i invested in the the $12,000 range so i'm I, it was money that i was willing to throw away yeah and it was speculation and it was fun and it's fun to check out. I'm like, oh, hey, I'm up. Hey, I'm up. Hey, I'm up. Whoa. That coin that I invested in, I didn't expect that one to be up while all the others are down. It's just kind of an interesting social experiment. Right. And uh, I'm down on everything right now. Except for when Bitcoin was down, silver was also down, and I cashed Bitcoin out for silver. Nice. <laughs> interesting. Yay. <laughs> that's cool. And silver's on its way back up. <clears throat> so. And that's investing security weekly. <laughs> <laughs> but so use your uh, use your Android botnet to harvest Bitcoin because then you can buy silver with it. There you go. Yep. You heard it here first on Paul Security Weekly. With that. Uh, the last story was uh, along lines of leaks. Uh, Apple's top secret iBoot firmware oh. source code has spilled onto GitHub for some insane reason. Yes. And by the way, um, GitHub is complying with the uh, DMCA takedown notices and I was mm -hmm. pulling those down faster than you can uh, shake a stick at them. So if you find one, don't fork it. Download it. Right. Yes. Don't put it back on GitHub because they'll just take it down again. Right. So. And I'm sure that uh, it's readily available to those that want to look hard enough. Yep. Which is kind of interesting. And so iBoot is their... Um, it's a bootloader. Bootloader for iPhones. Yep. And not in, in iPads and I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Uh using a tiny crowd of people who like rummaging through firmware code looking for holes to exploit to jailbreak devices. So who knows? Maybe this will re spark the mm -hmm. jailbreak revolution. Yep. Now this would be interesting if uh we can uh find a vulnerability in iBoot to uh be able to load our own software. Period. Well, that's a, that's, is that what jailbreak is doing or jailbreaking is really just allowing you to install unsigned apps unsigned apps i'm yeah, unsigned apps um a with, completely new firmware would be really interesting yeah, with, on apple's with closed a, platform, i would yeah. i would argue with a hardware with a bootloader vulnerability it is entirely possible that we could uh upload a, an unsigned operating system it'd be interesting you could run android on your iphone there's probably a lot more complexity to what I'm saying. I've never, yeah, and I've never actually, to be honest with you and our listeners, I've never thought about what would it take and how and why you would want to run Android on your iPhone. Well, I guess there's reasons why, but because you like Android and you like overpriced hardware to run your Android <laughs> on, I guess so. Maybe because, that's because why you, we haven't because, really seen uh, it. Wait, there's not you, enough reason because why. you love running your vulnerable ecosystem on overpriced hardware. Yes. Yes, you want to get hacked faster on expensive stuff. More, I don't know. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm an Apple fanboy. I know I've turned into Paul. You have. Many we've years totally ago. switched roles in that totally sense. Sw totally it, switched. Totally. Totally switched. In whatever role playing, technology role playing we're doing right now. That's kind of frightening. That actually. is frightening. Larry is the Apple fanboy through and through. Yep. Uh, I have largely converted to Android and Linux. And now that said, I am not at the point where I would go and buy whatever two of Steve Jobs hold up because he's dead. 
And if you held up anything, I'd probably go buy two of them. <laughs> uh, but no, pretty I'm, slim chances that's going to happen there. Yeah, but uh, but I'm very much uh, entrenched in uh, the Apple products, and uh, I'm actually started to move away from it where it makes sense. But I do enjoy the experience of my iOS and uh, my macOS devices still. Yeah, I um I still use an iMac uh, for my desktop. Yep. I'll probably at some point uh, jump to an iMac Pro as my desktop over uh, in favor of any kind of Linux box I could buy for the same price, which would get me something pretty fabulous Oh yeah. Uh, in terms of a Linux device. System 76 is free plug for them. Uh, pretty awesome at making hardware that works Heck awesome yeah. with Linux uh, yeah. at a pretty good price and pretty reliable hardware. Heck yeah. Yep, if I was going to make that jump, System 76 would be uh, on the top of my list for, for something to buy. Um, but... I just can't make the move to Linux yet. I break too many things on it still. Yeah. Even having been using it for ungodly number of years, I still break stuff. <laughs> Which is funny because you probably have Linux VMs on your Mac. I do. Laptops. I do, and I break <laughs> and I break them all the time, and I you know, you re- just, yeah <laughs> revert to, Reload, revert, revert to snapshot. from snapshot. Yeah, right. revert to snapshot or install a new one. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, I ran out of space on my Mac, and I have a one terabyte SSD because I ran out of space on right, it. Right. Right. So and then yeah, yeah. I like the experience from the operating system on both devices. They seem logical to me, and that's that's really what it's about. That said, I have Android devices to do what I wanted to do when I wanted to do it. Not running on iPhones. Right. Not <laughs> running on iPhones. <laughs> yep. Sometimes running on my Mac, though, in that's a virtual right. machine. In a virtual, in a virtual <laughs> machine. <laughs> oh, boy. Oh, Was there gosh. any other stories that we had today? <clears throat> nay, says I. It is time to walk the plank. That you is... scurvy dogs. <laughs> what Larry's trying to say is that concludes this edition of Paul's Security Aye. Weekly. Thank you, everyone, for listening and watching Larry. Take us out. Walk to plank, you scurvy dogs. Over and out.